0: Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Aviotons, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Perhaps you'd include Batgirl, too. Batgirl? Batgirl? Batgirl! Batgirl? Bats! Bat. I'm surrounded by
1: bats! Using
0: feminine wiles to get what you want, trading on your looks? Read a book, sister, that passive-aggressive number went out long ago.
1: Chicks like you give women a bad thing. Same job, same employer means equal pay for men and women. What in the world is this? Revolving walls, hidden rooms, disguises. What is Barbara Gordon's secret? I'm Commissioner Gordon's daughter. Barbara!
0: Hey, Babs! we fighting is a serious matter to me too, Batman, but we might as well get a few laughs out of Welcome all to Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 4. Episode 4 is brought to you by Black Mass Power Tools. Black Mass Power Tools is the leader in sleek, murderously good power tools. Each tool has enough RPMs to burrow through the center of the earth, or a femur. Just listen to this happy customer. Um, is that the right sound clip? It, it is? Oh, okay. Uh, Black Mass Power Tools. So good, they're scream worthy. So, per usual, before I actually get into the meat of the episode, I'd like to run through some questions that I've very thankfully gotten from some of you listeners out there. The first one comes from Apple, who is a part of the BatmanUniverse.net. Apple asks Are you going to run through any of the Batgirl episodes on TV, like the 1966 show and the animated series, etc.? I am indeed going to run through those two, and you can also add to the list the live-action Birds of Prey series that uh, had a short run on the WB. I'm not sure if I'm going to run through all of them in one episode or break them up and give them the attention they deserve. Right now, pretty much all I do know is that those episodes or episode, whichever, I'm going to have a guest host so i'm excited about that when they come i don't know you'll just have to uh, to stay tuned i suppose the next question comes from donovan donovan asks since babs nurtured cassandra kane in the beginning of her career and title do you think you will be covering those issues at all she's fairly prominent in the first two and a half three trades i know it's it's difficult to say um what I will be covering and what I will not be covering, especially since right now I just finished, you know, the year 1967, and that's about 30 years away, um, you know, starting in the 1999-2000s. Um, um, that girl slash Barbara Gordon slash Oracle has appeared in over 700 um, issues of comics, and I have... All the issues listed. And so I'm sort of going through and um, checking off which ones are really important to fleshing out her character. Um, So with that said, before... Donovan asked this, I was sort of a hard no that I would not pick up any of the Batgirl Volume 1s or Volume 2s with Cassandra Kane because I can get, um, you know, Oracle elsewhere, and that's sort of unnecessary. But I realized that because Cassandra Kane has such a large fan base, and she did, you know, get sort of a rough boot um, from her, her cowl uh, to give it over to Stephanie, I think that she does deserve some time. So I am going to tackle Cassandra Kane when, you know, that's sort of in the future. And in what way I'm going to do it, I'm not sure right now. But I will tackle her because I do think that she is important to the bad girl, um I guess, mantle. As well as, um, that's sort of the first time that uh, Barbara actually takes on a mentoring role. So I think that's important to look at as well. Next question comes from Hollister for Mayor. Will there be any Batman discussion, other than Batgirl? Who is your favorite member of the Batman family? Who do you like more, Batman or Batgirl? Um, I'm not really sure if how much, if any, uh, Batman discussion there's going to be on this. Um, I mean, the main point of this is really to flesh out the Barbara Gordon character. Um, his interactions with her, obviously, I'll discussing those which i've had you know the silver age how is bruce wayne in the silver age compared to how he will be you know in the 2000s the 1990s um when in the 80s i suppose when she first becomes oracle um but other than that i'm not sure if i'm going to go into some deep psychological um studying of batman um my favorite member of the batman family probably would be dick Grayson. Um, in nightwing form i'm sure more i think than in his robin form my favorite robin i think would be tim i think he did a good job i say did of course cuz he's red robin now um and Damien, of course i just do not like him um to quote one of my uh good friends bear barryman uh, i would not pee on him if he were on fire uh and who do i who do i like more batman or batgirl I'll take a stab at this one. It's a really tough, uh, tough question, but I'll go with Batgirl. Um, I mean, Batman's a really interesting character. Um, I think that Batman is actually the, um, actual identity of the man, and Bruce Wayne is the, um, sort of the false face, the pseudo face. Um, so I mean, he is really interesting to look at, With Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, sort of. She's, I mean, she's the reason why I'm doing this, because I love her character so much. So definitely Batgirl. Next question is from Steve J. Rogers. Okay, hey Stella, thought I'd chime in on the use of the Alicia Silverstone clip in the intro. So, are you officially sanctioning this character as a Barbara Gordon? Batgirl? Never mind that the movie is an atrocious piece of turd, but consider the facts. Yes, she is a whiz at computers. Yes, she is a skilled fighter, even though there is little evidence of actual training on her part. Yes, she and Dick Grayson share some quote-unquote moments. Yes she does share a few other characteristics as Ms. Gordon, but still, her name isn't Gordon. Not only that, she is Alfred's niece, not even related to Jim Gordon one bit. Not that too many would want to be associated with the bumbling idiot that those films portrayed the commish as, but that is a different rant. And most importantly, that movie should include a nice Men in Black style memory wipe for anyone who has ever seen it. Well, Steve, I guess you're a big fan of that movie. You know, I actually sort of like that movie. It was, to me, highly entertaining. I think I might have seen that, though, when I was probably 13. I remember watching that, um, but of course I had a crush on Prusodana, so I suppose that that made it better for me. No, I'm not um, sanctioning her as, you know, a legit Barbara Gordon character, but in my intro I just sort of tried to pull different clips um, from different places, um, and that one was sort of a good one, just speaking on, you know, feminine strength and how Poison Ivy was sort of dragging down the female name. Uh, sort of reminded me of, uh, that Catwoman issue that I reviewed last episode. Um, but no, obviously she's, she's really no Barbara Gordon to me. Um, just using her quip for entertainment purposes, so hopefully no one's, uh, too insulted by that. Okay, next up, Noctis asks, asks, excuse me, a few questions. As a balancer of both schoolwork and podcasting, among other stuff, what words of advice would you give Steph in terms of balancing her life and priorities slash responsibilities as a student and daughter and as Batgirl? Okay, well, first of all, being a daughter needs to always come first. Steph's mother is like her anchor right now to a normal life, and without her, she would be like Batman, Bruce Wayne Batman, most likely, uh, with nothing to remind her of her humanity. The problem really lies with juggling school and being Batgirl. I think the best advice that I could give staff is probably time management. She needs to figure out a way where she is able to get her work done without actually interfering with her other responsibilities. At some point, it will happen that she's getting work done before it's actually due, which will help um, really give her time for other things. You know, her life as Batgirl doesn't start before dusk, so she has a good amount of time, less so in the winter, uh, to do schoolwork. Of course, Babs is there to keep the balance between these two responsibilities, since Steph is working with Babs in school as well. Finally, Steph really needs to have a life. Without one, she will most likely go insane. She just needs some moments for herself to breathe, so she never gets to the point where she's asking herself, why am I doing this? next question, this might be a very confusingly worded question to ask, but what are some background lessons that Babs hasn't given to Stephanie that you would like to see her teach? And, um, oh, Noctis was also discussing with me that he thinks maybe Cassandra Cain uh, could be the next spoiler, so he asked what I think about that. You know, Babs's mentoring role for Stephanie has just sort of begun, and I think she's only touched the surface on what she's begun ta- uh, teaching her. Um, there haven't been many hands-on moments, um, and I'm not really sure if we're going to get any. You know, Babs is always seems to be at the computer, and it, there's always there's always sort of this this three degrees of separation between her being a handler. And then Stephanie or whoever is on the other end as sort of a handlee. I'm not sure if there's anything. I feel like just don't die. I mean, Babs just needs to teach Stephanie how to survive and how to take the emotional strain, um, be able to handle it because I think some things that comics don't necessarily always address is how tiring, how emotionally fatiguing this work is. And so. Barbara's going to know that more than anyone with all the crap that's happened to her. So I think that would be one thing that I'd actually really like her to sort of sit down and talk with Stephanie. Maybe Stephanie has like an emotional breakdown and we see how she struggles with that and then moves past it. As for the the spoiler thing, um, I had to think about this. And I think that Cassandra Kane is who I really want to be on the new Birds of Prey team. Um... She has a lot of skill, she can bring a lot to the team, but I think that she's more of a loner, and so I think she has a lot to learn. Um, it's not going to be uh, all for myself, I'm only going to watch myself and nobody else kind of thing. Now she's got to be able to rely on others, and she has to get to the point where others can rely on her. So it could potentially, she could potentially be that one blacked out caped figure in the background of issue one. So I guess we'll see. Uh, Noctis also comments that we need a Bailey, um Batgirl to Oracle episode so we can comment on his comment slash question from episode three. Um, yes. Um, I'm not really sure what I can say to that. Uh, there's definitely something in the works between Michael and I, but, you know, who knows? We both have crazy hectic Uh he probably more so than I, but we'll see uh, what happens. Um, Noctis also brought to my attention a Brian Hugh Miller interview that was regarding Cass. And you know, it seems obvious from reading that, that there are indeed plans for Cass, um, and that Miller composed her exit like he did on purpose. You know, not giving the proverbial finger to fans, uh, but because it's not a Cass book, which I can respect, I think he is going to start addressing a little bit, but not too much in the future, uh, what happened, what she's doing now. But I guess we'll see, you know, if she's in Birds of Prey, a lot of our questions will be answered. So, at least it's good to know that, you know, Miller wasn't sort of sticking it to the fans and he had his reasons. So, hopefully they'll, they'll work out. Um, you know, after reading this interview, um, it is pretty clear, at least to me, that Cass will probably be in the Birds of Prey lineup. So, if I'm wrong, I apologize, but uh, that's my guess. Okay, uh, Zaius has a couple questions for me. Um, his first question is, with Barbara soon to be leading the Birds of Prey again, how do you see her role continuing if you feel she has one in the current back role title? I do see her role as continuing. Um, will it be too much for her to handle? Time will tell, I guess, but it seems like she's good at multitasking. I mean, she was with the Suicide Squad in Justice League at one point, so that kind of shows that she knows what she's doing. Um, And I think if Steph is going to have any sort of mentor, that Barbara's probably the best one to have. His second question is, Wendy Harris was heavily featured in the first few issues of Batgirl, but less so recently. How do you see her role if you feel she has one going forward in the Bat titles? I honestly don't know right now. Wendy Harris seems like an interesting character, but she also seems like a redundant character to me. I think it's just sort of a Barbara Gordon Jr. Um, She has all the anger and the frustration that Barbara had in the beginning, and now Barbara's taking on another mentoring role. So it's sort of overburdening Barbara and having this superfluous character in there. So, I don't know what Wendy's going to do. Um, will Wendy be the bulky blacked out figure in Birds of Prey, who knows? I don't know how interested I would be in that. I guess we'll see. I mean, it really comes down to how Noah writes it, so hopefully she doesn't turn into some crappy characters like we're all used to in the spider verse. Zaya shared his thoughts with me, uh, and this is what he says, quote, in the short term, I believe Barbara will continue to oversee Stephanie's development whilst mentoring and inspiring Wendy. Then, when Barbara feels Wendy is ready, she'll ask her to take on the role of Steph's handler, allowing her to concentrate on her birds of prey duties. Whilst I can see some short-term negative reactions to such a move, suggesting that the writers have chosen a stereotyped route for story progression, the the she-can't-walk-therefore-she's-the-new-oracle sort of route, Uh, and I will concede that if it is handled badly, this could be the case, I have confidence in the writer's ability to avoid such pitfalls, end quote. I have to say that <laughs> Barbara Gordon was pretty much the only reason that I was getting the row book, besides the fact that um, I had high hopes in the beginning, naive hopes, as they might have been, that Barbara was going to be the row again. But now I've really liked it because of Stephanie, but I think my excitement for the title would go down if Wendy were her handler. Once again, it... It really does come down to, uh, like you said, how how it's going to be written. Um, in what capacity Wendy will take on this role. I guess it really comes down to Miller and uh, how well he does. So I guess all we can do, I guess it's a cop-out to say it, but all we can do really is wait and see. And uh, hopefully the best. Well, that's the last of the questions. Thank you all um, for your questions I do enjoy them it makes me feel like um, I'm doing something right that you guys are interested enough to ask me questions and actually are interested in hearing what I think so thank you again well before I get into the meat once again You know, put down your silverware. Uh, Got just some few comments. um, Some thank yous, really. Um, First of all, to Apple for leveling the audio of episode three. It was very generous of him. He just offered it out of the blue. So thank you very much. SpiderFan970 for my new album art for my podcast. You know, I had this really benign one, but now this one that he made is really great. um, And I'm really excited about it. So thank you very much. Hollister for Mayor uh, created great digital bookends that promote my podcast. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Zias Simon, Frey, Superman Fan Podcast, Brian, Guyman422, Bertoni Brad, Michael, and Bear for many compliments given to me. It bears repeating how much I appreciate everyone's praise and support. You guys are half the reason why I find it fun doing this. Uh, thank you. Also thanks to Wade Wilson, host of the Wolverine Berserker podcast, Guyman422, and Kevin Cushing for proudly displaying some banners that I made for my podcast. Thanks to Chris for his help in playing some comic scavenger hunt with me, and getting me the 1967 Batman series episodes. So yes, I am partly prepared for an episode on uh, Batgirl's um, exploits on TV. And finally, some more thanks go to Michael, a shareholder in Black Mass Power Tools, for pointing me in the direction of this great sponsor. And thank you also to my first two donors. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to name you directly, uh, but you know who you are, and I am forever grateful. So thank you very much. Episode 2, if you all recall, was brought to you by Granny Panties. Granny Panties was not only kind enough to sponsor my show, but to send me free samples as well. As you can well imagine, Granny Panties are comfortable and sexy and feel weightless. In anticipation of April's release of Grandpa Boxers, the makers of Granny Panties sent me a free sample of Grandpa Boxers. Sadly, I was physically unable to make the best use of these, so I sent them to a friend of mine to try out. Here to talk to you about his experience with Grandpa Boxers is my good friend, Kevin Cushing.
1: Thanks, Stella after exhaustive research and intensive testing i have found conclusively that grandpa boxers are in fact briefs but attaching a new name and renewed advertising vigor gives us cause to re-examine these undergarments we might previously have dismissed as for grandparents only In revisiting these time-tested purveyors of crotch restraint, I've been pleasantly surprised to find that grandpa boxers, with their snug crotch pocket, feel like a soft, cottony hand cupping your junk all day long, while offering unparalleled support if you find your cheeks sagging from frequent visits to the golden arches. In short, grandpa boxers may just be the single most valuable tool in the arsenal of male bondage undergarments you never knew you had for a fraction of the price of leather. Back to you, Stella.
0: Thank you very much, Kevin. Um, You you know, guys, I really hope you check these out. They're supposed to be coming out in April, so I would really rush to your local Walmart and be right first in line to get these. Okay, so as I stated last episode, Barbara's first year in publication, namely 1967, is now complete. To celebrate that, Kevin and I are going to discuss the nine-issue miniseries and my personal favorite, Batgirl Year One, which actually came out in 2003. So, before we start all this, I just have some questions for you, Kevin. Um, sure. What was your first experience of Barbara Gordon?
1: I think my first experience would have to be the 60s TV show when I was a kid, uh, played by Yvonne Craig, which doesn't hurt at all. Um, that was kind of a cursory experience, though. I got a lot more familiar with her in the Batman the Animated Series uh, in the 90s, which was great. So, yeah, I guess my first experiences ever were uh, all in TV, really.
0: Uh, why are you such a fan of hers? Um,
1: well, I I think a lot of my fandom of her actually came through uh, my fandom of Nightwing. I, I I love Dick Grayson; he's one of my favorite characters. And through researching and getting into his character, I saw uh, the relationship that he had with Barbara Gordon, and I really love that relationship. I still think it is could be, at least, one of the greatest relationships in comics. And it was just kind of a gateway into Barbara Gordon's world and everything that's great about her. Of course, I prefer her as Batgirl. Um, But, yeah, I think the miniseries we're about to talk about exemplifies all the reasons I love her.
0: Oh, for sure. Um, Now, I know you're a big Green Lantern fan, probably to Brad Douglas and Sugar Inn. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, if you had to choose between Green Lantern or Babs, who would it be?
1: Well, uh, I would have to choose Kyle Rayner over Barbara Gordon, but I would choose uh, Barbara Gordon over Hal Jordan, or any okay. of the other interns, for that matter. Okay. Kyle Rayner is my favorite character, period, so it's absolutely not a knock on Babs that he gets picked first, but she comes before the rest.
0: That makes sense. I mean, Guy Gardner is, if you'll of my French, a real douchebag, so, uh... Mm,
1: cheers. on français. <laughs>
0: Um, so, I think you're aware, uh, that there have been some Photoshop images floating around the crawl space and you know my blog, um, of Summer Glau as Batgirl Barbara Gordon, uh, done by both Noctis and Pete Parker. Um, Noctis wondered, uh, what, what your thoughts are of these images that are kind of floating around the, the interspace?
1: Well, I think it's inspired casting. Um, I don't know who first came up with the idea of Summerglow glow is Barbara Gordon, but she would do a wonderful job of it, and I never thought of her. Um, the images look look pretty cool. I I was impressed with the with the red hair and everything, and she well she always looks good, but she definitely looks quite good as a redhead. And the the Alicia Silverstone mask is a little bit disturbing, and it's Alicia Silverstone's, uh, but it still gives us a good impression of what she would look like with a mask on. I think she would be a great choice for it if if we could ever get an adult Barbara Gordon in a movie.
0: Um, and I know you watched Dollhouse, and I do recall watching a particular episode with Summer on it, and she was wearing sort of rectangular glasses, and I was really getting sort of the Oracle vibe from her. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yes, absolutely. She was uh, she was quite the computer geek in that show, and, right. uh, <laughs> which you've got to watch the show. It, it was excellent and hilarious. But uh, she was she was kind of psychotic, too, so not quite Oracle, but
0: yeah, uh, oh, I could, yeah. I could go. Yep. Um, well, I guess, I think that's all I have to ask for you, sort of just uh, to whet everybody's appetites. So, um, I guess we'll just straight go into these reviews since we've got nine issues to tackle. Sounds good to me. Um, so, throughout, um, these nine issues, um, the writers and the pencilers, the inks, and the colors are all going to stay the same. So, Scott, uh, is it Betty or b I think it's Beatty. Okay, Beatty. I, that sort of makes sense. Who's going
1: uh, on like Warren and Ned Beatty. Yeah, I was
0: just going to say, yeah, the actors. Uh, So Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on story, Marcos Martín on pencils, Alvaro Lopez on inks, and Javier Rodriguez on colors. We've got a bunch of um, Hispanic people, I guess, on the art side. That's awesome. Uh, So issue one is called Masquerade. Uh, One of my noteworthy quotes that I pulled from there is, I have to find another path divine my own future, one uniquely mine, not a page from someone else's book, not a fate that begins and ends on one page. Barbara Gordon wants desperately to become a police officer on the Gotham City Police Department, but her father, Captain James Gordon, refuses to even think about another cop in the family. Undeterred by this, Barbara tries to find a position within the FBI, but still with no luck. She takes Jitsu classes, excuse me, um, but looks outside the norm for more training. She doesn't see Batman as a potential mentor, but someone with fishnets. Uh, she opens her father's sealed files and learns the location and security codes for the gotham city headquarters of the justice society of america she leaves a letter on the jsa meeting table for black canary and makes certain that the mansion security cameras capture her image on film so begins bad's descent to heroism the entire issue is interspersed with moments from the masquerade ball where Babs makes her to debut with the Batgirl costume. The scenes go back and forth from the present to the future, using Babs's mm-hmm. voiceover to connect them all, which works really well. Um, this intermingling of the timeline also gets to the simile we see throughout that Babs is a modern-day Cassandra with no one believing in her. Now, for a quick history lesson, because you all know how I am... Uh, for those who don't know, Cassandra um, was a daughter of Priam. Priam had 50 kids. He was pretty worn out by the end, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the the king of Troy. Um, and she was at one time sought by Apollo, a god of prophecies, music, poetry, ar- archery, the list goes on. Um, Apollo granted the gift of foreseeing the future to Cassandra, but she did not really reciprocate her feelings for him. And uh, he curses her so that pretty much no one will believe her prophecies. Tragically, while Cassandra warns of Troy's impending doom via the Trojan horse, no one listens to her and, well, we all know what happened from there. So in using Cassandra as a conceit for Babs, I think that the writers are able to do two things. As stated previously, we get the idea that no one believes in Barbara as Batgirl, something which leads to the downfall of many a naive person. And I think, number two, her connection to Apollo leads one to think that this could be a subtle hint to Barbara's future, not only as Batgirl, but as Oracle as well, since Apollo has direct ties to Oracle's in Greece and oracular responses. Um, You know what I love most about this issue is that I can really relate to Babs. Not only does she not meet certain height requirements, which, you know, that happens to me all the time. Never. Uh, I know. Um, but people are constantly underestimating her, and she has a great desire to prove them all wrong.
1: Um, I I see the, uh, the Oracle Cassandra references, honestly, as, at least when I'm reading it, it seems less like all this deep shading that you're finding in it, and, and it feels more like just really heavy-handed foreshadowing using the name Oracle, which they do in almost every issue of this series. Uh, and Cassandra, right there on page two, which is, of course, at the time, uh, the current Batgirl. So just, just reading the Oracle Cassandra on page two, uh, it, it felt a little ham-fisted uh, to me. But but maybe you're right, and all those Greek references are exactly what they were going for. And in that case, it's, it's pretty daggone brilliant. <laughs> and uh, with so much time, though, spent in front of a computer in this issue for her... Um, She talks about her computer skills, she's even Skyping with a hacker at one point. And, and that, that Oracle reference at the beginning, a lot of this issue uh, kind of bothered me. It felt like Oracle Year One uh, rather than Batgirl Year One. But the intercuts of the future really helped out with that because we were able to see Batgirl in action, uh, and, and we really got to see that it was a Batgirl comic. So without those, it would have really felt like the Oracle origin story. But I think the intercuts were a really good idea, and they saved it.
0: Do you think they were trying to make her out to be from the very beginning a a techno nerd, so that um, she wasn't always just a librarian like they did in 1967, but she always had sort of um, a techie uh, geekiness running through her veins so that it wasn't such a large uh, leap to Oracle. Do you think that's what they were trying to do when they were revisiting her past?
1: That's really how it felt to me, uh, at least in this issue. A lot of the other issues did a lot better, but this one particularly... uh, I mean, obviously... In 1967, she couldn't have been uh, voice chatting with a hacker, so we're, we can credit some of that to just updating the origin, uh, which they do a lot. They really set this firmly in a fairly modern day, but uh, it does really feel like we're trying to put that oracleness back into her, and she, you know she's talking about that she's not going to uh, just be an information source uh, for the people that are actually out there fighting and. there's just so much reference to Oracle in this issue I found a little bit overwhelming. But uh, you would know better than I would. Chuck Dixon wrote Birds of Prey at one time. Was it the same time as this miniseries?
0: He sort of started it off. So, um, I mean, that started in, like, uh, 1999, 2000, so he would have been, I think, still at the reins with that uh, before before it sort of switched over to Gail Simone.
1: Yeah, so I feel like... At the beginning of this miniseries, at least, it feels like it's almost in service to uh, what he's doing on Birds of Prey.
0: I did uh, really like the stereotypical um, guy in front of the computer looking at sort of this, uh, I don't know, what kind of wallpaper that was. but uh, Porn! Well, I guess. Who knows? She was kind of naked. No. <laughs> Luckily, we don't see anything, so...
1: Nope, oh, just curvatures.
0: Oh, dear.
1: <laughs> but uh, that's that's kind of a really... I'm going to use it as a very weak segue <laughs> into uh, Marcos Martin's art. Uh, because, well, he drew it. <laughs> but um, I found I found Marcos Martin's art uh, in this whole mini-series. Really, I can talk about the art in the whole mini-series because it's all very consistent. I found this much better. Uh, than what I've been seeing from him on Amazing Spider-Man lately, uh, which, his art on Amazing Spider-Man is not bad, it's just not really to my tastes, it's just, here it looks, uh, clean, crisp, lighthearted. it really moves well, and even still, everything still looks good. Um... Once he's progressed to Amazing Spider-Man, I feel like he's kind of sacrificed some of that aesthetic quality, just that plain, it looks good, uh, for even more fluidity, which I thought he had enough of here. But the point is, I thought the art was really strong on this. I was not sure about it because I had read some of those Amazing Spider-Man issues before I read this the first time. Um, but I really, I really think Marcus Martin's art is very strong here.
0: Definitely. I think... One of the things that really sort of ticks me off sometimes is, like, these big-chested women, and um, I think, like, he really, I mean, Barbara looks like a real person, you know, like, mm-hmm. she, she doesn't have, like, a huge chest, and I don't know, she, in general, just seems like someone that, hey, you could really get along with. Um,
1: I agree, and he does an amazing job with facial expressions, too. Which which you can't oversell the importance of with a comic, especially with you know a teenage character that should be very uh, expressive, because teenagers you know emotions are, are running all over the place. But uh, he does a lot of throughout this miniseries, great little moments with little faces. Some of the times when I was looking for good quotes, uh, I almost wanted to pull out just a panel. I was like I c- I can't speak that. <laughs> yeah. But they are some of my favorite moments, just the looks he puts on characters.
0: Yeah, I agree. So overall, what do you think uh, you would give this first issue? Uh,
1: I would give it 7 out of 10 bats. Uh, it was it was a good read, but some of those uh, weak points, some of the heavy-handedness kind of came out to me a lot more on the second read-through.
0: Um, I think I would give it 10 out of 10 bats. Um, I guess I feel biased, but um, I don't know. Just um, I think when I started reading this series, and it really happened between issue 1 and issue 2 for me, I really wanted Barbara Gordon to be a real person because this, you know, series just really made me fall in love with the character, and she just seemed like this person that I could totally be best friends with, and I really admire the character, so it was really sort of the beginning of this. It was, had such a strong beginning, I think. Um, so 10 out of 10, but um, it won't be perfect all the time, people, I promise. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess let's move on to the next issue.
1: Alright, um, uh, background year one number two is titled Future Ten. The noteworthy quote I pulled out was, "...the future is only the beginning." Instead of the meaning that Black was hoping for, Babs is met on a rooftop by Wildcat, who gives her a few discouraging words, but apparently enough to frighten her back down the ladder she came up on. It specifically mentions, "...this life can leave you crippled." Oh, the subtlety. Babs is sent into a deep funk, and not the George Clinton kind, until the commish gets worried enough to toss her an invitation to the policeman's masquerade ball, thus inadvertently leading her directly down the path to those future scenes we've been seeing intercut throughout. It also leads to a wonderful little nod when Babs goes to a little costume shop called Infantino's Costumes for All Occasions. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast should be able to get that one now. I didn't on the first one, but after listening to this, I know it. Um... So Babs crafts an amazingly accurate costume, considering that no one knows what Batman looks like, and is off to give her father a shock. She hopes this will prove to him that he's underestimated her, though for the life of me I have no idea how. As we already knew from the flash-forwards, Killer Moth breaks into the party, striking laughter into the hearts of the gathered millionaires and cops. And nobody laughs at Killer Moth, except for generations of comic book fans. Cut to young Dick Grayson catching this unfold on the news as he drops his cereal and runs for the cave. Elsewhere, Bruce Wayne is in his car, changing from his clown costume to something more appropriate. Babs fights the good fight against Killer Moth, but he gets away, and he's angry. Also psychotic, but that was a pre-existing condition. And just after the humiliation of losing a guy named Killer Moth, and having to run away from the cops, the brand new Batgirl is met by the dark and shadowy dynamic duo, and only one of them has a crush on her. Well, all in all, uh... This was a much better issue, I thought. Uh, it takes itself a little bit more seriously than the last one, but it doesn't lose that youthful heart that makes it so fun. A lot of good little moments in there. Uh, Alfred's narrations through his journal were great. Uh, they referenced Robin Year One, which was by the same writers, came directly before this, and this it's kind of hard to read Alfred's narrations, though, because they used a poorly chosen cursive font, so that was a shame. <laughs> Uh, her future tense narration, though, uh, is really what makes the whole thing work, I think. Uh, it builds that feeling that bad things are about to happen. We've got this light-hearted spirit all around us. We've got sort of foreboding because she's telling us where things are going and she seems to know they're not good.
0: Yeah, foreshadowing, I think, is something that they really play up here and, uh... Some people think that they weigh it on heavy, and at times I can see where they're getting that. But I think it really does work for the the series, um, especially since the first issue is sort of darting back and forth between uh, stuff that was happening at that time and then stuff that was about to. So. Um, and I think
1: it it's. It's undeniable that they lay it on heavy, but I think there's good reasons for it. Yeah. I mean, first there's just the fact that this is an origin miniseries for a character we know well, so you almost have to foreshadow because we know all the stuff that's going to come later. And then there's the fact that every issue of this miniseries is jumping back and forth through time, so it really only makes sense.
0: And, I mean, I find it kind of fun to, like, be able to pick out, like, the little things that they're doing, like the Infantino. That I mean, that's really cute. <laughs> so, I mean, I find it amusing. So.
1: Yeah, that was a great little nod.
0: Yep. Um, I also applaud uh, Dixon and Beatty for waiting until issue two to bring in Batman and Robin. Um, I think that had they brought them in first – the first issue probably would have overshadowed Batgirl, and I think she needed to really start off strong in the first issue. So I was glad that they waited, um, and then brought them in. And of course, you have uh, some real Killer Moth action. Um, <laughs> of course, everybody knows how much I love this B-lister. So,
1: how can you not?
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: he's a moth, and he kills.
0: Um, but you brought up a good point in your summary about her making the costume um, sort of to spite her father, which is a complete um, turnaround from what we saw in issue 359 of Detective Comics, where she made it because she really wanted to emulate Batman. So I kind of like how um, Betty and or Beatty and Ch- uh, Chuck Dixon, wow, um, <laughs> they're going off of the old material but they're really making it their own as well so i think that's sort of the sign of a good creator
1: and i think in this one she even specifically mentioned that she wouldn't want to just step into this legacy this is not what she would want to be right so it's kind of flipping the whole thing on its head although really i one thing that struck me is i cannot figure out how dressing up as a bat was supposed to prove to her father that he underestimated her
0: yeah i'm not sure or it's just sort of get to get under his uh skin because she later says that you know it's something they don't talk about unless i was in this issue um that they just don't talk about his relationship to batman so maybe it's just supposed to like needle him i'm not sure mm. it all works <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what grade do you give this issue
1: I'd give this one 9 out of 10 bats. I thought it was a big improvement all over an already enjoyable first issue.
0: And I, once again, uh, give it 10 out of 10 bats.
1: It's not going to last forever, folks.
0: It, it won't, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so issue 3 is called Afterglow. Um, my quote that I pulled from this one is, which I thought was probably one of the best ones, uh... Little twerp in short pants thinks I'm a, wa- uh, a walkover. I almost thought it was Wallflower. Uh, <laughs> he's got a lot That's to funny. learn. Yeah, short pants and pixie boots. I love, I love those uh, two nicknames that she calls him. Okay, yes. so Batman and Robin begin to question this new hero known as Batgirl. Robin tries to grab her, but Batgirl kicks him away and runs off into the night. She arrives home and quickly climbs into her bed before her father returns home police officer jason Bard arrives to make sure that barbara is okay warning her that killer moth is still on the loose jason takes advantage of the moment to hit on barbara but she slams the door in his face good girl later killer moth killer moth conducts a meeting with gangster tony brezzi offering him his services as a super protector brezzi laughs at the preposterous villain and has him thrown out of his place The next night, Barbara dons her Batgirl garb, ventures out into the night, and stops several criminals from robbing a grocery outlet. After returning home from a busy night's work, she decides to improve her crime fighting arsenal. She orders spelunking, spelunking supplies and fashions a bat rope for herself. She scales one of the highest skyscrapers in Gotham City and prepares to test out her new equipment. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin closely observe... So, before I go into any of my comments, you know, I've got a, a little character highlight. One of my favorites, Killer Moth, a.k.a. Drury Walker, a.k.a. Cameron Von Van Clear. Uh, he offered his services as a paid protector to Gotham's gangsters. However, despite his arsenal of ingenious weapons, like his signature cocoon gun, who doesn't want a cocoon gun, Killer Moth was a little more than a laughingstock. The fact that Batgirl thwarted his plans to kidnap billionaire Bruce Wayne cemented his poor reputation. Killer Moth would later become, um...
1: Charaxis?
0: I have, I wondered if it was, uh, like, a... Oh, I don't want to get into linguistics. But if it was, like, a fricative, <laughs> or if it was, like, a, a chi, sort of like a Greek chi, I don't know, Karaxis, Who knows? I would we can Which go for is, sounds good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, basically a man-eating monster tormenting the streets of Gotham, but of course not yet. Um, my favorite scene, um, possibly of the entire series, is the one where Jim comes into Babs's room and wakes her up. You know, the conversation between the two, as well as the implications, really make you think um, whether he might know about... Um, what she's doing late at night, and of course I really love the bit about him fixing the trellis back when Babs was ignoring her curfew. Um, I could also really see uh, Stephanie um, in this version of Babs, just um, the mistakes that Batgirl is making right now, because she is um, she's a newbie to the game, and I think that that's really realistic. But just like Steph, any of the mistakes that Babs makes here, she'll always learn from them. So you can really tell that she's a character that develops.
1: Yeah, they did a very good job with uh, maintaining everything that makes the character great, but really bringing her back to uh, to teenage years and to just starting out, especially when you know they are altering the source material and adding a lot to it. Because I... Uh, I only know the original material for all this through listening to your podcast so far. I have not gotten to read it. Um, but it sounds like it, she was quite a different Batgirl, really, in her first appearances. So they, they kind of had to build this version from the ground up, I think. And they did a great job with it.
0: I definitely agree. Um, what, what do you think about um, some of those romantic implications that they gave to Robin, where they had that flashback and uh, Robin was sort of flirting with uh, Barbara when she was younger?
1: Loved it. Um, did you read? Did you ever get to read Robin Year One?
0: No, I haven't. It's it's on my list, but I have not read oh. that.
1: That uh, that little scene with uh, with Robin standing on the roof and Commissioner Gordon saying, "Not on your life, boy wonder." That was that was actually a cutscene directly from Robin Year One, and it was wow. one of my favorite pieces in Robin Year One. I love that they brought that back, oh. and I love that uh, it, you know, it was the same writers for Robin Year One. I really liked that they. Uh, they don't make this a direct sequel. You don't have to have read Robin Year One, but they're continuing the threads. You know, They're showing that this whole Batman family uh, is, is, is all interconnected. because so You can read Robin Year One, then Batgirl Year One, and then Nightwing Year One, and there's threads that go through all of them. And that, that really adds a lot to the experience, I think.
0: Yeah, I think continuity also makes the writing stronger too. Um, mm-hmm. where, so yeah, definitely, I'll definitely have to pick that up now. It gives me more incentive. <laughs> uh, so I mean, unless you have anything else to say, um, what what's your grade for this one? I'm giving this
1: one a ten out of ten bats. It was, Whoa! It, it's it's rough to to even review an issue like this because you just can't knock it. It was so good. <laughs>
0: And I will agree with you. Um, it's not shocking. Uh, ten out of ten bats for me as well. Um, like I said, there are some classic moments. I think the relationship that the writers build between Jim and Barbara are is one of the strongest that I've seen. Um, and they have cute moments throughout. So
1: Yeah, they do a very good job with the father-daughter, which can be... Uh, difficult for a lot of writers because you can devolve into cliche pretty quickly because there there are really only so many directions you can go with it. Yeah. But but they did a very good job of developing that I think. Yep. So, Batgirl Year One Number Four is titled Cave Dwellers. Noteworthy quote I picked out of this one from Robin: was, "The red hair, that cute little burst of freckles across the bridge of her nose, cowl or no cow, I recognize Captain Gordon's daughter anywhere." So this is the obligatory Batman's a douche issue. Uh, He's a douche for a reason, but he is still a total douche. Wow. (laughs) First he cuts Batgirl's rope mid-swing because she brought the wrong kind, having Robin save her, of course. And then next he saves them both himself because of a surprising moment of incompetence from Robin. Next we take her to the Batcave for a round of Good Cop, Bad Cop, with Robin giving her a tour that ends in a live fire exercise complete with a real honking grenade and in the end batman doesn't think she's ready but robin who figured out her identity immediately calling into question how she ever hid it from her father is still crushing on her so batman dismisses her and robin sends her a box of bat gifts to get her started that was that that was it um, <laughs> I, I found this issue to be a real step backwards in quality um, I, I know people like to do the Batman's a jerk thing but Batman's such a jerk that he puts an underage girl in front of real bullets and a real explosion and Robin can recognize her anywhere after meeting her once though she will fool her father for years uh, <sighs> this is this is sloppy writing I think Um it's a big disappointment after the last issue, I'd say. There's there's just holes everywhere.
0: So, well, here's two questions coming off of that one. Number one, do you not buy the the good cop, bad cop? I mean, Batman was saying, you know, he was being a jerk so that Robin could be the the nice guy.
1: I buy good cop, bad cop. Uh, I buy Batman talking like a jerk. Uh, I don't buy Batman uh, putting this girl he's just met, this, this little girl, uh, in front of... Real bullets uh, and a real grenade with a real knife, trying to stab her out of nowhere. I mean, she could have gotten killed. That—that's—that's that's way too douchey.
0: Well, maybe he had more confidence in her than uh, than the Silver Age Batman. Who knows?
1: Well, his confidence ain't gonna mean a lot when she's lying on a slab and he's explaining <laughs> it to the commissioner or the captain.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that is a problem. <laughs> uh, my other my other question, I sort of resolved it in my mind afterwards, because, um, I mean, there is sort of this, um, I guess, this thread running throughout, not really a thread, but this thought that Jim does know that Barbara is Batgirl, but then I forgot in issue nine that that sort of resolved, but, um, yeah. so I, I do see wh- what you're saying about how Dick would know that it was her right away, and then um, Jim wouldn't, but, I Any- mean, how, oh, so you gonna- go ahead.
1: Forgetting Gordon, though, even somebody like Jason Bard.
0: True, yeah. You
1: know, anybody that's really seen her more than once, (laughs) if they saw a picture of Batgirl, should be able to say, oh, that's Barbara Gordon.
0: Yeah, this is true.
1: I I liked it, don't get me wrong. I mean, I I did kind of like it. It was cute, uh, because I love the Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon relationship. I love the really kind of slow, uh, sweet way they're building it up here, and I like that, you know, oh, I could recognize those freckles anywhere. I mean, it's adorable. But I just don't think it quite works when we're already in a world that uh, is walking such a fine line, really, with nobody able to recognize Dick Grayson under a little domino mask. Uh, It's it's one of those things you just shouldn't mention. (laughs) But uh, to then say that he can recognize her under a cowl just because he's seen her, Uh, It kind of breaks that whole uh, suspension of disbelief down a bit.
0: Um, and if you guys remember when I was discussing Stephanie's trip to the Batcave last issue, and I kept sort of mentioning this idea that maybe she would be so awestruck by the penny, as you can tell, Barbara is not awestruck by the penny, but by the Cray mainframe. That was probably <laughs> sort of going back to that nerdy thing. I just love that, that that he was Batman was talking to her, and she's like, "Geez, is that a Cray mainframe?" And I had to research what a Cray mainframe was because I had no idea. Oh,
1: good, because um, I thought that meant you were way more nerdy than me.
0: Oh, no, no, no. I, I had to research that. Um,
1: I didn't, he, the first time I read through it, I didn't even really catch it. I'm like, uh, what? And moved on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, the one thing I do really disagree with is um, I just thought it was so unethical for Batman and Robin to remove her mask um, at the end Um I don't know. It really put her at an extreme disadvantage, and I do suppose Batman was trying to teach her a lesson, uh, telling her to go back to being the normal girl instead of the one in a costume, but I just didn't really like it, and it sort of made me angry. What did you think about that whole episode at the end?
1: I actually think it's a bit ambiguous as to whether Batman even saw her with her mask off. Uh, We don't see them unmasking her. We just see Robin and Alfred... Uh, in the car after they've dropped her off with her costume next to her and Alfred mentions to Robin so you knew the whole time who she was uh, Robin mentions that he knew who she was but we never actually get any confirmation that Batman unmasked her at all so it's possible that the only one who her identity was really revealed to was Alfred which eh, might be okay
0: yeah that's true he does sort of know everybody's dirty laundry
1: yeah, Alfred, I think, could probably take down the JLA with everything he knows.
0: This is Maybe that's why he's the um, leader of the Outsiders right now.
1: Probably so, Then he apparently has some badass military creds.
0: Uh, true, true. The British uh, Navy, wasn't he? Or the Air Force? So I uh, hear. Oh, okay. Just like that, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, So, yeah, what's your grade for this one?
1: My grade's going to be a 7 out of 10 on this one. Um, I think if we're back to... Oh, well, I think we're back to the quality of the first issue, but honestly, this one bugged me more. <laughs> I'll still give it a 7 out of 10, though.
0: I'm going to shock you all and go with a 10 out of 10 bats. Um... I really liked all of the scenes. I do. I mean, it's this is sort of why I like this format, talking with someone, because I do sort of get another opinion, and I do see now where maybe he was, oh, Batman was a little harsh, and that uh, Batgirl could have died. They weren't rubber bullets. <laughs> so, uh, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So the next issue, uh, Batgirl Year One, Number Five, Moth to a Flame. Uh, one of my favorite quotes. Maybe if I got a couple of punk kids, picked them up off the street, and taught them what I know. Moth boy or lipidopter a lad, or... I mean, seriously, who would call one of their sidekits Adopter a lad? That's... <laughs> <just call laughs> Only somebody L-squid. who will
1: later become Chiraxis.
0: I guess, or, yeah, or Charaxis. Who knows? Charaxis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> Cameron Van Clear, aka Killer Moth, is drowning his bat sorrows in a bar catering to crooks and bee whisters called My Alibi. He talks to an as-of-yet-unknown man, letting him know about his troubles with superheroes, namely the Bats, and his grand plans for a a protection racket. Before this, Van Cleer came up with a grand plan to get some sidekicks, decides to let his henchmen see his hideout, and finds himself with no henchmen, after his hideout proudly displays a foreclosure sign. Meanwhile... Back at the ranch, Garfield wins a special tech. <coughs> tech- Whoa, <laughs> are you okay there? I totally muted. <laughs> no, you know if if you were muted, that wouldn't have uh, been resounding in my ear, my friend.
1: I apologize. <laughs> my mute button. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's completely fine. Um, I was gonna come <laughs> up with some sort of smoking joke and then tie that back into Garfield Linz, but I, I I don't know.
1: Do you rather um, in your modus operandi than actually make the joke?
0: yeah anyway um meanwhile, Garfield wins, a special fX technician on a movie set, loses his job by blowing up slash burning an actress. wins clearly takes a macabre pleasure out of fire mixed with the hint of woman is that what is that the kind of thing you go for?
1: Well, everybody likes hot women
0: no oh, boy
1: <laughs> good set me up.
0: <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> it's Linz with whom Van Cleer finds himself talking to in the bar. Once Van Cleer utters the name Batgirl, Wins is on board. The new partnership of Killer Moth and Firefly has its maiden voyage, attempting to frighten Tony Brezzi into paying for protection. Wins goes a little too far, and it is clear that he means business and is about to push Killer Moth to a whole other level. So here's our second character highlight, I think second out of two. Um, firefly, a.k.a. Garfield wins was a pyrotechnic expert for motion pictures before falling poverty-stricken and turning to a life of petty crime. He dons his Firefly outfit after his first run-in with Batman and Robin, inspired by a glowing Firefly. Isn't that a, that's a cool guy, isn't it, looking at an insect and deciding to uh, make a costume out of it? Well, those uh, and there's mobs. Yeah, this is true. His pyromaniac tendencies led Nicholas Scratch to hire him in order to create the largest fire Gotham City would ever see. Unfortunately, this very same fire left Firefly horribly scarred on over ninety percent of his body. Hopefully, the ten percent is um, was protected by some grandpa boxers. <laughs> <laughs> <That's not> protection. <laughs> yeah. You know the one thing about this issue that is really striking is that Babs is nowhere to be found physically. Um, you know there are small hints of her here and there. There's probably like three panels I think where you see some sort of silhouette, um, and then in the end you see her face maybe by the computer. Um, what carries her throughout the issue is her voiceover in the form of a computer document. Um, but I don't know. It's it sort of didn't do anything for me. I, I really need Babs, I think, to be in the actual issue.
1: Yeah, there are... I find several problems with this one. Um, that narration in itself, this was the worst possible time that we could have picked to switch her narration to a, a different font and style altogether, because we got gotten used to this these handwritten-looking narration boxes, and now we are all of a sudden on tiny type so with Barbara nowhere in the issue, so we don't get a setup shot seeing her typing in a computer to let us know that that's her, her voice is even a little bit off in this, honestly. So it's, it's a while before we even get confirmation that those voiceovers are Barbara. Uh, the first time I read it, I knew I was supposed to think they were Barbara, but because of the entire lack of confirmation, for a while I was thinking that it might be a misdirect, and this might even be somebody else voicing over um, so that was, that was a really poor stylistic choice with changing that, and they changed it right back in the next issue, so I don't even know why they did it. Um, yeah, the, the, the fact that she's not in it basically turns this into a rogue profile issue, which Jeff Johns did some masterful rogue profile issues uh, in his Flash run. So you have to really compare it to those. It it, it begs the comparison, especially with Firefly being one of the ones on this one. Uh, Reminds me of the road profile issue Jeff Johns did of Heatwave. So comparing the two, the biggest difference is that Johns actually explained Heatwave's origins, going all the way back to his childhood. Uh, It showed us that he was obsessed with fire even when he was a child, uh, to the point that he, he loved his family, but he just couldn't help himself burning his house down and watching them all burn inside. He just couldn't look away. So that built in the psychosis from a child. With Firefly, all we get is that he likes fire and burning women. But we don't ever get why. There's there's no real psychological origin. There's no where this came from, what he'd been doing before. Uh, It was... uh, You'd have to do something really great, I think, with these villains to justify a road profile issue in the middle of a character's dedicated miniseries. And this one just never did it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you there. I think um, Dixon just sort of paints Linz as just this psychotic guy that um, just one day snaps, goes too far, and then uh, he's out of a job and he finds – luckily he finds somebody else and decides to team up with him. Um, the only reason I could potentially, um, explain it as maybe, um, uh, Dixon saw him as really a Batman, um, oriented villain so that he would assume readers would know of him outside of these issues and know his real origin and just sort of only pulled him in in this, uh, respect. I, but I, I do agree though that it was sort of lackluster, mm-hmm. um, I think I also agree with you about the voice not being spot on for Barbara. Um, both times, you know, the first time that I read it and then, you know, my second time, I also was wondering if this was not um, Barbara Gordon talking. I sort of flipped to the end to like sort of uh, re- um, refresh my memory on what was going on, but, you know, there are times when she's really whiny, and she's sort of talking about her inadequacy, and how she's annoyed with Batman, and it was just sort of this voice that wasn't hers, because I think that Barbara, while she does get angry, she has human emotions, I just think, um, sometimes that these whiny voices don't really fit her.
1: Yeah, and, again, it's just such a, a bad choice of placement. If we are going to have uh, you know, we can show some alternate emotions for her that maybe she doesn't usually show. But why would you pick an issue where she's not going to appear to show a different voice for her in a different font? <laughs> it's just confusing. And all it would have taken was an establishing panel at the beginning showing from behind her sitting at a computer typing this. And then we just go into the rest of the issue. That's all it would have took. But we didn't yeah. get it.
0: No, you have to wait till the end to figure out what's going on. Yeah.
1: So well, very, very yeah. issue all in all, I think.
0: So what would your grade be for this one?
1: I'm giving this one a six out of ten bats. It's it's <clears throat> the midway point is uh the bottoming out for this miniseries, I think.
0: Um, and I I give it an 8 out of 10 See, so, yeah I told you I wouldn't be perfect all the time but uh, talking to you I was sort of vacillating like man do I want to pull it down you know to a 7 because it just sort of made me realize how much yeah I didn't enjoy it as much yeah, um, and you
1: sound almost depressed talking about it
0: I know <laughs> I, I shed some tears on my uh, my issues um, but,
1: okay not emo depressed
0: uh, oh I want myself to feel alive Yes, uh, <laughs> you should uh, know <laughs> yeah uh, see people are going to stop listening to this podcast after this issue it'll be really depressing I really uh, will cry well um, they're going to
1: start sending you love letters and say, please don't kill yourself
0: <laughs> we'll see yes you can email me at <laughs> to Oracle at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> but really yeah it was the lack of Babs that was just really apparent and you know like you stated just the the voice was just sort of off um, for me. So, yeah.
1: So, let's try to improve on that one a bit. Uh, Batgirl year one, number six, titled Bird of Prey. Noteworthy quote I pulled out of this one. Uh, maybe my favorite quote of the entire miniseries. The pixie boots must wear thermal underwear when he's riding one of these. Windchill's gotta be murdered with those shorty he wears. Cute legs, though. We begin with a masterful flash-forward, as Batgirl and Black Canary are fighting off a thug about to chase Killer Moth and Firefly down to rescue Jim Gordon from their clutches. The writers could not have started this issue any better. We're thrown right into the good stuff, catching our breath right from page one. But never content to stay in just one time period, we then flash back to see Robin, with the full covert support of Batman, as if you had any doubt, supplying Babs with her very own Batcycle. And one of this issue's main strengths, and it has many, is a mastery of transitions like you rarely see. They are flawless. And one of the best examples, Babs rides that new bass cycle right through back to the chase with Canary. And, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I tripped myself up there. Uh, Moth and Firefly have Gordon on the back of a truck, and Babs and Canary give chase. We then flash back once more to see Killer Moth and Firefly being hired by Tony Bressy, who seems to have made it out of Last Issue's Inferno with just burned hands, to take care of Gordon, who is the man snitching on all his corrupt cop pals. Once the costume critters leave, though, Tony makes a comment to his underling that he's setting them up. Meanwhile, Gordon is having a meeting with P.I. named Benny, currently owner of Lance Investigations, as Officer Jason Bard stands watch outside the door. When the two leave, Bard runs back up to grab something Gordon forgot and is met by an explosion. He survives, but he is then kneecapped by Killer Moth before the pair grabs Jim Gordon. As Babs hears of her father's abduction via the news, the scope of this miniseries takes a flying leap, and we cut up to the JLA satellite, where Black Canary learns her father's old offices being blown up. Lance Investigations, get it? Batgirl and Black Canary then link up when they both go to investigate, and they're off to Tony Bressy's on a tip from Jason Bard. Back to the chase, we discover that it is two imposters that have Gordon, and they panic taking him to Tony's house. Hot on their heels are the real killer Moth and Firefly, who have a pair of lady heroes captured this is how you improve on the last issue. <laughs> this was a great issue. Uh, I think I gushed mostly enough in the summary, um, but wow. It's far and away the best issue we've seen so far, and really one of the best weapons in any comic writer's arsenal is great scene transitions. Other, other media have it easy. Uh, they can, you know, Lost, for example when they'll flash back and forth through time, they have a specific sound effect to let you know you're flashing through time. All a comic book writer has are images and words. Uh, And these are maybe the best uh, transitions I've seen anywhere, from scene to scene, from time period to time period, period. Wow, that was redneck. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, so yeah, I'm gushing because really the transitions just knocked my socks off in this issue.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think throughout, um, you know, this issue especially, but throughout the series, I think the transitions are some of the best that we've seen. Um, some of the problems I really have with, you know, Spider-Man or other series is that they jump from one point to the other, and it's just such a um, a shock to you that you can't you can't pull those two together, even if they try to um, carry over a voiceover. Um, but I think that they really accomplish it here. Um, <clears throat> I agree that, you know, I would say that it's like a 200% improvement from the last issue. Not only do we get Babs back um, in all our glory, but we get Black Canary as well. And I think it was an, an ingenious uh, way to tie Canary to the issue. Um, it probably would have been random and grasping at straws if she would have just came in uh, since she didn't RSVP, but they tie it to her post-crisis father's old uh, detective agency. Um and one of the things that I was really shocked about was when Killer Moth uh, kneecapped uh, Officer Bard. I thought, wow, he's really gotten ballsy. Um, and Or, you know, just thinking that um, Firefly has s- this power, I guess, um, such a psychotic nature that he's actually started influencing um, Killer Moth. And then. I was actually really shocked, even though I've read this series before, I was really shocked to, like, figure out that, oh, wow, they were actually duplicates. So it's sort of – this is the sort of thing that I like to be surprised again, you know, rereading it. Wow, that's so shocking. You can really tell that it's good writing when you can't tell what's going to happen. So I approve.
1: This is one of those times when I was confused a couple of times reading because we would see – there are all these flashbacks and forward, but I was pretty sure we were in the same time period. I was seeing Killer Moth and Firefly talking to each other in two totally different places. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, where, where are they? And so the end was a great payoff to find out that they were imposters, and I felt like, you know, it was one of those things I felt like I should have known, because we saw Killer Moth and Firefly tailing Killer Moth and Firefly. You just didn't really connect it in your head. You thought you were missing something. So yeah, it was very well done, and it was it did surprise me again the second read through.
0: I also like um Barbara seems so worried she really wants uh to, to um show that she knows what she's doing in front of canary, um which I thought was kind of cool. it's sort of this um. I don't know, teacher, teacher-student kind of thing, which is completely different from what we have now. When they're really good friends and birds of prey, um, and I especially like—I I do like the quote at the end. Though some people I know think that that's—it's too heavy. Um, promise me we won't ever make this little partnership a regular thing. Um, and obviously, I don't know, but you can tell she's disgusted. I mean, look, she—her uh, fishnets are ripped. I would be disgusted too. So. <laughs> Um, but one of the things, you know, I wondered what you thought. Um, here we get a taste. We saw Green Green Arrow in this one. Um, in the first or the second issue, we see Wildcat and even Dr. Fate makes a little appearance. Do you like these little interspersings, you know, these random um, characters sort of popping in just for a scene or two?
1: Yeah, I like it that uh, this grounds us in the DCU as a whole, uh, lets us know we're playing in a larger universe. Somebody like Batman for his origin story, uh, it's perfect to insulate him because his origin story is really uh, just about Batman. It could almost take place completely outside the DCU. But uh, Batgirl, she's a more fun character, so she's more personable. Uh, she has, uh, Oracle especially, has a lot more, not necessarily more, but she has a lot more strongly defined, I guess, uh, ties in her everyday life. To a bunch of other characters, so this really uh, kind of shows us that she is living in this larger universe, and that other people are noticing her, uh, and and does help set up where she's eventually going, especially once she becomes Black Canary.
0: Yeah. And I do, I think even, you know, for those little moments, they really have the voices down for these characters. I mean, the, um, the little verbal sparring that, um, Black Canary and Green Oliver have, I thought that was, or, well, I guess there's some sexual tension there, obviously. But, um, yeah, but I mean, that's, (laughs) that's them though. I mean, I, I just like, I don't know. I think they do such a good job with voices. They're generally really spot on.
1: Yeah. Um. One thing I wish I knew uh news and DCU history better, though, was when... Do you have any idea when the JLA satellite was established? Because to me, that seems like way too forward in time for Batgirl's first year. And I know we're updating this to, you know, Skyping with hackers, but... It just feels like in the timeline of DCU, I don't feel like the, DC, the JLA satellite should have been around when Batgirl was first starting out. But I could be totally wrong on
0: that. Right, yeah, and uh, I yeah, I don't think I know much about it as well, because it seems like uh, the most history I know of the their different locations are really from the, the cartoons. I mean, in Super Friends, they were obviously in the Hall of Justice, and then, you know, Justice League, they had the Watchtower and then they upgraded to the Watchtower and then they went down into sort of a Hall of Justice, so sort of backwards. So yeah, I honestly don't know as well. So,
1: But uh, they are dancing a very fine line with uh, modernizing while still putting it in DC continuity uh, with this whole miniseries, really.
0: Do you think it's modernizing or do you think it's, um, you know, like I commented before how they're... They're using um, sort of the old stuff as a framework, and then they're adding their own ingenuity, their own creativity into it.
1: I do think they're modernizing. I think one of the, uh, if not the biggest sign of that, was in issue one, again, when she was voice chatting with this other hacker. I mean, it's it's not been that long, I don't think, uh, that, that two people can just sit here with their headsets on and talk through their computers. I mean, it, right. it was not that long ago that this... Uh, this technology was really introduced. I don't know the exact year, but uh, I do feel like Batgirl's origin should be longer ago than that, but we have all seen, you know, a sliding timeline in comics. It's just that I I, I don't want the timeline to slide within the DCU continuity. You know, if if right. the JSA or JLA satellite shouldn't have been established, then that shouldn't slide. But also I'm I'm kind of girl or Barbara Gordon was a bit older the first time she had her origin than she is in this. Oh next yeah, season. yeah, yeah. So it's it seemed a bit weird for me the uh, how much older than her and and I guess more experienced Black Canary seemed. Uh, it was almost like it was almost mother daughter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it just makes it kind of odd for once you get to Birds of Prey and they're still and they're basically the same age as each other and they're good pals and. And, I don't know, the whole thing is kind of strange. But then again, I don't think they ever nailed down Barbara's age in this miniseries, anyway.
0: Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, she's at least... I feel like she has to be... um, I mean, I'm thinking 25, to be honest. um, In this miniseries? She's... At least 22, because she graduated college, she had to have, and she was pre-law, she said. So she at least graduated college, but I wondered if she has a master's, which would put her up in the uh, 24-25 range.
1: Yeah, I guess I just kind of glossed over that whole pre-law thing, because it's just from the way she's portrayed, and especially the way she's drawn, it feels more like 16. Yeah. That's why when I was talking about uh, the Batman's a Douche issue... Yeah, that's why, that's why I say underage girls. Yeah, girl. I, so I yeah. really thought of her that way. And yeah. yeah, she did say pre-law, but I just completely glossed over that.
0: Yeah, that's like statutory violence. Now I I see what you're saying about that uh yeah. that whole gauntlet issue. Yeah, <laughs> you know, ages I think are a problem in general. I mean, if uh, Babs was a congresswoman at one point, and um, what's the uh, the minimum age for that? Like 35, yeah, not it? Yeah. But then they start sort of <laughs> evening or, I guess, minimizing the gap between her and uh, Dick Grayson at some point. And then this one's is probably the smallest gap that we encounter. But he – I guess he excels at some point in uh, age to get close to her. Uh, yeah. Well, the
1: the problem really with having – Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson so closely associated is that Dick Grayson, more than most other comics characters of all time, was really allowed to age over his career. And Barbara Gordon, you know, she was mostly kept around the same age. So you saw, it's the same thing with Batman, really. He stayed the same age while Dick grew from little kid boy wonder into, you know, maybe 25 to 28 year old Nightwing. Yeah. So it's It's a difficult dance to do, and it's just it's tougher when you have to show these things together like this.
0: And I wonder if we have to take into consideration the crises that have happened. Um, yeah. Because I knew this issue was coming, and I knew Black Canary, um, like, what form she was in. But when I had to reread it, I, I was wondering what uh, pre-crisis or whatever um, form it was. Because at one point, her mother was actually Black Canary. So, like, her origin sort of changes with the crisis, so... Yeah, and I'm not
1: all that familiar with Black Canary, really. I mean, how old is she? Uh, (laughs) Was she not supposed to be, like, some kind of a founding member of the JSA at some point? Yeah. But I think that was her mother.
0: I I, I think that might have been her (laughs) mother, though, was the JSA founder. Okay. Um, I used to know her history pretty well, but now it's sort of, yeah, dissolved. I'm
1: afraid I'm not all that familiar with Black Canary. I mean, I read her in, uh... And Brad Meltzer's JLA run and a little bit of Green Arrow, a couple of things here and there, but I've not really gone near her histories, which is one of the reasons that this was sort of a, huh, moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it is, it is strange, I'd say. Um, because. One of the things that I really like about Birds of Prey is this close um, I like to refer to it as chemistry But not sexually This really good friendship <laughs> chemistry Well, you know, people They're f- slash fic um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> We will not speak of
0: such things. Yeah, I know, right? Um, this close friendship chemistry Between Barbara and um, Dinah Is one of my favorite things about Birds of Prey So it, it was a little strange to see this sort of Teacher-student business going on
1: Although they did make a little progress during the issue. I know there was one yeah. point where uh, Babs' narration mentioned, you know, we're already trading barbs like sorority sisters.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, I did enjoy that.
1: They did uh, seem to start forming a bond pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, and of course the first quote is, can you believe the mouth on this chick? So, um, <laughs> good job overall. So, what would your uh, gray be for this issue?
1: Oh, this would be a 10 out of 10. Uh, absolutely loved it.
0: And I am actually going to um really shock you for reals Um and give a nine out of ten. Um I definitely thought it was better than the last issue, but I think it's it's still working up to something, so I'm sure we'll get back to the the regular ten out of ten status. We flipped. I know. Oh my <laughs> word. Hell is freezing over. Um
1: what you get for getting diverse opinions on your podcast, gosh darn it.
0: I know, right? Um. So yeah, the next issue, Batgirl Year One, number seven, Hearts of Fire, or I should say that in a Southern accent, Hearts of Fire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem fair, does it? You give your all, and they just put you on the shelf. That's one of my uh, quotes from the issue. Back at the Brezy Ranch, Firefly takes care of the competition. Batgirl rescues Jim Gordon, and Black Canary shows two men what it feels like to be hit by one tough chick. Later that night, or most likely early that morning, Gordon has a talk with Robin telling him that Batman needs to shut Batgirl down before he does. Does he know? Barbara makes a visit to the hospital to see Jason and gets caught by her father running out of the room. Well, I mean, she gets caught by her father... And then she runs out of the room. Need to specify there. Uh, She uses her sleeplessness to her advantage and goes out on a patrol, only to run into Robin, receive a new bat bike, and go careening down some subway stairs towards their first mission as a team. (sighs) One of the smart things that I think Dixon did in this series is not pound us with the same story from beginning to end. There are breaks and transitions that work really well within the framework of the Killer Moth and Firefly storyline, and this issue is one of them. Um, You know, it begins with Killer Moth and Firefly uh, not uh, only wrapping up the events of the previous issue, but sowing the seeds for the conclusion, as well as hitting home the character portraits of those two villains. I think we also get to see a lot of Barbara, which, of course, furthers her character. um, And then... Well, I mean, she does sort of start acting like a girl again, which is something that I don't think we've seen since the first two issues or so. Um, I thought it was just so, it was an awkward moment, I thought, that she just was so embarrassed when her father popped in the doorway. It was as if, you know, she had done something wrong, and then she just runs out. I just thought that was very, very strange. What did you think of that moment?
1: (laughs) She was flirting with an older and crippled man.
0: Well, how much older? Not that much. I don't know.
1: When I was reading it, I was thinking she was much younger, so...
0: Oh, that's true, yeah. It
1: seemed a lot more creepy to me the first
0: time. Okay, okay.
1: Now that I'm thinking back on this, I have fe- I have fewer problems with what I was worried about before. So, uh, yeah, I guess she's just, you know, she's, she's embarrassed to let her father see her flirting, you know? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe she thinks that he... Won't well, like her choice in men, you know, dating a detective, or a cop, or, well, now almost a private detective, whatever.
0: Yeah, someone's as bad as dating a bat, I'm sure.
1: Probably not nearly. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I really love this issue. Um, I thought more than any of the past uh, issues, this one really justified why this one was such an extra long miniseries with nine issues where usually miniseries is six, even Blackest Night is only eight. Um but we yeah we're really getting to see that this isn't uh just Batgirl's first mission. It, it's Batgirl year one. And we we get to get into a lot of uh well, diverse moments in her early career. Uh not just the origin setup, the takedown of the villain. And it it makes for a great picture of what her early career was like as a whole. Um, rereading it a second time uh, to review it, really brought out that this this may be one of my favorite comics. I mean, it was just it's fun. You get a lot of great little moments, um, and those little moments, which are I think what are so great, are exactly what you would have lost if this was made into a traditional six issue mini series. You wouldn't get uh, things like I mean, my favorite thing of the whole the whole issue was she hears screams and don't go in there, and she. She gets up to this window with her, her little uh, batarang ready and, and she sees some kids watching a movie and she you can just kind of see her in the background looking in the window with a little smile on her face. And that's what I was talking about with Marcos Martin's art. Those little those little facial expressions <laughs> are are some of the best things about the whole miniseries.
0: Definitely. Um, and I agree about the the nine issue thing. Um I think that they use all of them well. Uh, there's no stuffing like we see with all the other things. No superfluous material. I think everything really counts. Maybe with an exception, an exception of um, issue five a little bit, but I was um, point that. yeah, <laughs> we yeah. You could have probably done with eight. Yeah, the villain uh, profile, but yeah, I think it definitely works. Um, one of my favorite art moments, I think, in here. Um, was sort of the the fire dancing in wind's eyes, just like little touches like that, or canaries ripped fishnets. I can almost imagine how irksome that would be to draw all those little lines. So <laughs> I, I applaud him for that. Yeah. Um and. I commented before about the interaction between father and daughter, and I think the bathroom interaction was also very good. It was shorter, but I think it still is sort of cute, and uh, it really made me smile, especially the fact that her, her face was burned from the fire, so she had to put on that that moisturizing cream, and it still sort of maintains the Batgirl mask, which, you know, that, that could only fuel the flames for uh, Jim to think that she might be Batgirl to actually see her um covered up like that in the same way
1: yeah so. but it was a better idea than walking out to him with a batgirl cal sunburn
0: <laughs> this is true <laughs> this is true
1: uh, it was uh that that scene was another one of those great little moments uh and again it was the facial expressions on jim gordon and, and mostly too, his 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 posture you know you don't see a lot of great funny posture <laughs> but uh but Marcos martin really nailed that i thought he made it an amusing scene
0: I think the other, uh, since we're on facial expressions, the other one I really liked was um, when Batgirl was going to to kick the guy with the switchblade, but before she does, she's going to give him the count of three, and like when he actually pulls out the switchblade, she's just so sort of bored and she's like, <laughs> "Oh, I can't believe he did so," but he gets a swift kick, so it works out, and <laughs> and in the uh, the crotch area, so. Uh,
1: Indeed, if he'd been wearing Grandpa boxers. Yeah, he probably
0: would have been protected.
1: Yeah, insulated. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and of course, the uh, the bat bike. I mean, so you're you're a fan of Yvonne Craig? How do you like this this styled bat bike compared with the uh, the frilly purple one that we saw in the '60s Batman?
1: It's been a long time since I've seen the '60s Batman. So, <laughs> you mentioning that is the first time I've even remembered that it was frilly purple.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: But this is probably a, a little bit better of a design. Probably uh probably more crime fighter worthy.
0: Yeah. And it's it's nice to see that I mean it's not just Robin that's giving her the gifts, it's sort of Batman giving it through Robin and that maybe he is sort of um grasping her worth and realizing that she is worth it. I mean it was I thought it was a nice moment just that she said, Oh you put my symbol on it, you know. Mm-hmm. So. so what what would your grade be? <laughs>
1: I gotta wait for you to ask. I don't always want to it out.
0: Oh okay. <laughs> I, I okay.
1: Because <laughs> if I, I out of grade and you're not done, that just kind of ends the whole discussion.
0: Yeah, well, talk. I wait until there's an awkward pause, and then I ask <laughs> if I decide, oh, we must be done, there's an awkward pause. So,
1: <laughs> so uh, we've, we've blown our formula for everybody now.
0: Oh, shoot. I'll just edit that <laughs> so, out or something, I don't know.
1: My grade uh, is another 10 out of 10 bats. It was another perfect issue.
0: And I'm going to have to agree with Mr. Casey over here and say uh, 10 out of 10 bats.
1: All right, moving on to Batgirl Year One, number eight, and this one's titled "Seasoned Crime Fighter." Not where they quote from this, another one of my favorites from the whole thing. Nobody move! A shot of this Dijon in your eye, and you'll be sorry. <laughs> So the still dynamic but decidedly better looking duo of Batgirl and Robin speed through the tunnels on their bat cycles on their way to a hostage situation and make time to stop the condiment king who, uh, Wait,
0: wait, I have to stop you. Yes. Why are they decidedly better looking?
1: Because one of them's Batgirl instead of Batman.
0: Oh uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was not okay, I understand. I'm sorry. Well, I, I
1: guess it you. wouldn't qualify to you, but to me.
0: <laughs> I'm okay. Okay, continue.
1: <laughs> um, so it's, it's it's good to stop at the Kahneman King there, though, so everybody can let that sink in for a minute. Oh,
0: for sure, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, that was followed by a surprise smooch from Robin that stops Batgirl dead in her tracks. Literally. Uh, when they arrive, Barbara impulsively leaps in headfirst and manages to take down the hulking creep known as Blockbuster all by herself. As Robin gets the hostages out of the subway car, when Jim Gordon arrives and is questioned by a well-placed cameoing for Vicky Vale, he hears the tales of the red-headed heroine and sees the red locks left behind in Blockbuster's clutches. And just like that, his mental light bulb goes on. Just as Babs arrives home to find an angry Jim Gordon sitting in her ransacked bedroom, he gets a call, which they both follow to the site of a towering inferno at the GCPD. This, uh, again, was another wonderfully crafted issue. Uh, it gives a lot of focus to the budding Robin and Batgirl relationship, which, of course, I love. Uh, so it's every, every issue in the last half of this miniseries is pretty much just flawless comics.
0: And, you know, I'm not sure how many listeners, there are some out there who know, but um, this is the reason why you complete me, is that we're both um, uh, Barbara Gordon, Dick Grayson shippers. We really love that relationship. So, I, this is why I really thought you were the best person to have on, because we both would appreciate not only this entire miniseries, but some of these, you know, little moments like we see this kiss here. Absolutely. Um Yeah. And, you know, this kiss is sort of like a backwards homage to Batman Family One, where actually Batgirl kisses Robin in order to get him to shut up. Um, But of course. In this
1: case, he actually wants to kiss her.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So that is sort of the backwards. you know, in this issue, I think more than the the grocery store one we saw in the, in I- issue number two, we again see Babs making mistakes. Um, she's gung-ho all the time and uh, will in no way give up. She always looks before her leap. She leaps. Um, and she doesn't really think about a situation uh, completely before actually trying something. So, uh... You know the constant destruction of the Batbike is kind of disheartening too. I mean that must be sort of expensive for uh, mm. Batman to pay for all those.
1: She's costing but, Batman thousands, but uh, I know. he has it. <laughs>
0: But, you know, all of these mistakes that she makes um, and her constant desire to succeed and keep trying before she succeeds is something that really um, portrays her, I think, as a real heroine, not some of this, like, muscled-up girl who never makes mistakes. I think that's sort of unrealistic, and I can't believe it, so...
1: And I was quite honestly shocked she beat Blockbuster without Robin ever having to intervene at all, really. Um... But I think it was probably a good decision since we're on Issue 8 to show her really, you know, she's starting to get the hang of this. She was able to take him down, but yeah, she, that was not the best plan, or rather lack thereof.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, she does use the, uh, what are those spray things called?
1: It's the what the who now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, if you're, like, about to be mugged, you pull this out of your Mace. purse. Yes! Okay, nice. thank you. See, this is why you complete me. Um, yeah, she uses that, but really, um, okay, sort of, yeah. But <laughs> thank you. But really, it was like the uh, the cement roof on the uh, the subway that really sort of took him down for the count, wouldn't you say? That this wasn't like a definite win in the win column, but sort of like a I kind of won.
1: Oh yeah, she didn't she didn't exactly tactically you know beat him head to head one on one she she definitely got a lucky little uh, piece of concrete there yeah. but you know she she's far from the only superhero to get a to get a piece of luck like that <laughs> <It's> <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah i can especially because i was i honestly on both reads uh, i was really expecting Robin to have to intervene at some point, at very least hold him down or something, or, you know, knock him knock him off his feet with something I don't know, but I was I was very surprised to see Robin never even enter into this fight he, yeah. he, that bit of luck, she did it all by herself and Blockbuster's huge!
0: Yes he is hmm. um, and I think the use of Blockbuster was really interesting um, and I don't know if I don't really think you can paint it as random. Um, he seems like the kind of guy, he, he doesn't have much brains, that he would just sort of start ransacking a train. But if you, and I know you read some Nightwing, um, and I know that uh, Oracle and Nightwing sort of teamed up later on um, in that series to stop him. So I wonder if um, if Chuck Dixon is sort of pointing to that, or if it's just... Uh, blockbuster came in on his own um without looking ahead to nightwing what do you think about that
1: i would imagine it's a nod to nightwing because i actually haven't read those issues sadly but i'm 99 sure chuck dixon wrote them
0: oh, okay
1: uh, so it, it's not a coincidence and really who just pulls out blockbuster right of all yeah. people <laughs> uh the one thing though that, that gets me i'm gonna have to read those nightwing issues now because i've seen you know just summaries of them that's some of the way I've caught up on history of things I've not been able to read is just to get some summaries, you know, see what happened in the issues. And it it sounded like Blockbuster was a lot freaking smarter than this in Nightwing, so I don't know. if That that kind of threw me off, because hearing of Blockbuster in Nightwing was the only association I had with him before reading becko Year One. So seeing him as basically the Mindless Hulk kind of threw me for a loop. I'd, I'd be interested to know if something happened to him between here and there, or if I'm totally wrong, and he is a ditz in
0: Nightwing. Yeah, maybe it's sort of like what happened to Solomon Grundy, because he used to just be a zombie, and then, like, in Justice League, when they rebooted it, he was this, um, like, mastermind for some reason. I didn't know how Keep he got on brain. Yeah, I know, I was like, huh? He
1: yeah. suited up.
0: He still ate body parts, though, which is kind of gross. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, and what did it <laughs> taste for it?
0: Oh, gosh, you can't go away, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: I was gonna try to come up with those rhymes once you go whatever, but I, I uh, too short notice. Sorry. Yeah,
0: you'll never get back or something. Yeah, I got uh, what you're saying. Once
1: you go body parts, what rhymes with parts? Yeah, you know, it gets into your heart,
0: huh? Yeah. Okay, uh, edit what? that. Edit that. It's <laughs> that. like I will not edit that. <laughs> um, you know this this issue strays from the main conflict, which was. I mean, it's always been about Killer Moth, and then we sort of add on Firefly, but I think, you know, in the end, it's such a um, a quick transition, but I think it really works. It's sort of, um, if I have to read into things. I mean, it goes from... Barbara being, like, really red hot to, like, her driving down in her little Volkswagen um, and seeing, you know, this building that's all aflame. So I think it was one of the the sharper and quicker transitions, but I think it, it still worked um, like the other transitions.
1: Yeah, I thought uh, the way they did this was great um, because, as I said, I think the last issue, it's good to see more of her early career and not just, you know – set up the villain, take down the villain. This had, this this miniseries had more scope to it, uh, even though scope seems like a weird word to use since uh, it's, it's more urban. Um, a lot smaller moments are what I'm talking about here, but it, it's got a bigger scope. It's not just that uh, that one through line. You know, and this issue was really good to kind of uh, take a break and see her, especially develop this relationship with Robin and uh, take down a different villain, which I think prepared her for her final fight with Killer Moth and Firefly. Um, And then it was was great because you not only got that stuff on panel, but you also let those two kind of percolate off-panel until in the very end, boom, they're back. Very well set up. (laughs)
0: wasn't there a dance called the Percolator like
1: Was there like, really two
0: thousand? I don't know. <laughs> I just imagine myself in like a middle school gym and like the percolator music comes on and we do the percolator, but that's Neither here nor there. Um, my
1: brother's girlfriend told me about a dance called the Stanky Leg, so I guess wow. there could be a dance named anything. Uh,
0: apparently, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe that'll be. Hopefully, one of my sponsors will sponsor me, and they'll their name will be the Percolator. You wait for that; it'll happen. I'm waiting. Um, for baby. Oh gosh, the Percolator! <laughs> Once you percolate, you produce babies, so be careful. Wow, um, that was
1: on the fly, wasn't it?
0: Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> can you tell? It's less polished. I'll work on it. Um, I haven't talked too much about um, Martine's um, art, uh, not as much as you have. Um, one of the things that I really love about him, or well, especially in this issue, are the silhouettes. Uh, I think we saw one back in issue six that I forgot to talk about where you just saw Babs and Black Canary. Mm-hmm. I suppose that was yeah, and you just saw sort of the, the yellow hair and the red hair and that and everything else is black. And one of my favorite panels in here is um Batgirl with Robin and sort of she has like her um her hand provocatively raised, kind of towards his mouth. Um and you sort of see some strands of red, but really all that's highlighted is the bat on her chest and the R on his. And I just think it's I just think it's like really poetic to like not come up with a better word, but I mean it's so simple, but I think it's so wonderful.
1: Yeah, and that was a that was a very sad little scene too because you yeah. uh, you got that little silhouette. It almost looked like you know the oh. the whole tempting shh, you know, and maybe she'll kiss him or something. <laughs> then the next panel is her extending that hand to push him away, and he's yeah. looking all dejected. I felt That's, for the
0: guy. It yeah, I mean especially issue nine, what he has to do for her. So good segue. I know right. <laughs> um no, but before we do that, what, what was your uh your grade? Thank you for asking,
1: Stella. Uh my grade is ten <laughs> out of ten. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, ten out of ten. Another another great uh issue that I can find no flaws with.
0: And um I would once again say that it would be a ten out of ten. Um and I did forget, didn't he um oh 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 yeah, she does admit that he knows his way around a kiss. Mm -hmm. um, that was
1: a good line, I like that
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I applaud that okay so issue nine sadly the last you know I wish this would never come to an end but Batgirl, Batgirl year one number nine ashes and blood my quote that I pulled out it's a batman's world babsy might as well get used to it GCPD is in flames and killer moth and firefly are to blame the crescendo of this great series reaches its climax. As the bug duo take to the skies, Batgirl goes after them knowing that with her being the only hero present, the responsibility falls on her shoulders. Batman and Robin arrive in a whirly bird, but Batman wants to see how everything plays out. Batgirl anchors the moth copter and does some quick calculations, releasing herself from her line and dropping into an athletic pool. That was... You know, I just have to interrupt myself, but that was (laughs) sort of insane just because, I mean, doing calculations on the fly is always intense, but when you're dropping at that amount of speed, 9.8 meters per second squared, you know, you're off like by a fraction and you're dead.
1: Yeah, I guess this is more (laughs) foreshadowing to the whole Oracle thing.
0: That she's a freaky genius? Yeah, I guess so. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So to continue, uh, (laughs) she brings down Killer Moth and Firefly, but the credit goes to Batman and Robin. Babs gets summoned by Batman to meet... He forgoes the gas and takes her, blindfolded, to his cave. That's kind of creepy. Um, <laughs> Batman shows her her... What? I don't well. know. Whatever. Yeah, I don't see. This is why it's good to read over. Um, Bat- oh, oh, I understand what I was saying. I'm sorry, folks. Um... <laughs> batman shows batgirl her present time um, filled only with killer moth and firefly and with an ample opportunity to stop and her future one with the biggest and baddest and including Joker. she accepts her future and is taken to the headstones of martha and thomas wayne There, she takes an oath and finally is truly part of the team. Robin later dresses up as Batgirl, which is sort of embarrassing for him, I would say, in (laughs) order to convince Jim Gordon that Babs is not Batgirl. At the conclusion, Babs helps Jason Bard set up a detective agency, tosses around the idea of running for public office, uh foreshadowing and accepts <laughs> or i guess that's back shadowing really since that happened in the uh the 70s um <clears throat> and accepts that she is going to live in the here and now come what may um i think probably my favorite scene in this issue is um and one of the more powerful scenes throughout the entire series um was Batgirl in the gauntlet. You know, it was really heavy, it was dripping with foreshadowing obviously, but um, that's not really why it's powerful. You can really feel Babs coming into her own. You feel her acceptance by Batman, feel the emotional impact of her realization of who Batman is and why he does what he does, and you really feel the power of the oath. And I think it's just all those emotions, I think, that combine and make it a really powerful scene.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know when you get to the end of an origin miniseries like this, uh, well, a flashback origin, you, you have a couple of choices, and doing it this way with having these statues, robots, whatever they are, of the villains standing around her is a much stronger way to do it than to just take us out of the story and, say, flash us forward and show us things that are going to happen. Uh, this way... We get to stay in the story, we get to stay right where she is, but we get a great panel like she faces the Joker standing in front of her with a gun. And we all know what that means. Um, uh, you know, foreshadowing is one of the things I've kind of had a problem with throughout this miniseries. I thought there has been a lot of heavy-handed, ham-fisted stuff with uh, particularly the mention of oracles pretty much every issue. But this, uh, this was some really good foreshadowing. That was, that was some very strong stuff.
0: Two of the the cutest moments, I thought, um, were when Batman told her that she was late when she came into the Batmobile, and she was sort of blushing and said, yeah, I was trying to check it out. You know, she was doing some reconnaissance, trying to figure out if this was a trick or not. And then, of course, that poor scene at the end where uh, Batman dressed up as Batgirl, and uh, he says... I know. Oh, <laughs> that's just, see. No one's here to correct me when I say that, things like that.
1: That would have been even more awkward.
0: Yeah, it would have. Because um, <laughs> no one. Yeah, people would have been shouting through their speakers or whatever. Um,
1: Hi, Jim. Fun. I'm Batgirl. I've grown a bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and my testicles dropped.
1: Um, <laughs> Turns uh, out I'm not a Batgirl after all. <laughs> yeah, well, you know
0: that is kind of sketchy. Um. <laughs> But yes, Robin dressing up as Batgirl and, um, what was it? Oh, yeah, it's sort of turning to the side and really sort of this forlorn look and saying, I thought she liked me. I thought that was just like a really cute moment. Sad, but cute. It was so sad.
1: Yeah. It was just depressing. But then you have to go to Chuck Dixon's next origin miniseries, Nightwing Year One, and you can get them together again and it's
0: much more fun. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually looked for that, and I, I don't think I've found all the issues, so I, I never bought them all, but...
1: I've got all these in trade. Uh, the trade was pretty easy to find, I thought. That's true. For course, Batgirl year one, actually, the trade was kind of difficult to find. I don't think this is even remotely in print anymore.
0: Which is why it's such a good book.
1: Mm, yeah, because out-of-print stuff, always better.
0: Uh, I, well, it's like fine wine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's basically what I will... Uh, um,
1: Equate it to? Com-
0: yes. Or I was going to say compare, yeah. but That'll
1: work yeah. too.
0: I was going to say <laughs> metaphorize, but I'm like, that's not a word.
1: <laughs> it's your podcast. You can make <laughs> words if you want. I'm I, sure have done it before.
0: I appreciate that sort of artistic freedom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, overall, um, I mean, this really is – I think this issue really – is the quintessential girl. I think um, she really gets to the point where this is the girl we, we all know, you know, until she is Oracle. So I think they did a job, a good job, working from a low point and then building up slowly, and then we do have this crescendo, this climax at the end, so. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, initially going through it, I thought that the takedown of the villains was a bit too quick uh, particularly with them getting their own little origin or focus issue, like they, I don't. Again, it just this really makes it so they didn't need that focus issue because they were just kind of taken down. But I do think it was the right decision because it gave us more time with the rest of this final issue to see kind of the setting up of the new status quo for Batgirl being Batman approved and you know her. Uh, relationship with Jason Bard, uh, things with Robin, her father, all that stuff, uh, it was better to be focusing on that for the rest of the issue, so uh, it seemed like a hiccup. I'm still not sure it was the best way to take down the villains so quick, but the the rest of the issue did pan out very well.
0: I don't know how else, I guess, do you think, like, a long, drawn-out fight scene would have been the way to go, though?
1: I don't know about long, drawn-out, but, I mean, I feel like she didn't even trade any Many words with the villains. Yeah, you know they didn't even really meet face to face. She she caught him with a line. She hung from the line. She dropped into a pool. Batman and Robin got him. You know there wasn't really any. Uh, you didn't really feel a whole lot of rivalry. You knew that uh, Killer Moth hated her and he was going die 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 <laughs> from the copter. But you know there wasn't there wasn't a face to face rivalry to it. Um, we got this whole issue a couple issues ago that you know, I assume we're supposed to get into the psychology of these two and build them up as characters. So from that perspective, they didn't get a, much of a character ending. You know, there wasn't really a climax to their psychology stuff. I meant I meant to say psychologies and ended up with stuff. That sounded really smart. Um, <laughs> there wasn't a climax to the psychological stuff I was supposed to meant to say. Uh and there wasn't a big climax to their rivalry with Batgirl. It just it felt like it was okay for Batgirl, but it felt like more of a short shrift to these villains who we had built up so much. They were just taken down.
0: Yeah, I do. Yeah, I agree, and I see what you're saying, that it is sort of impersonal in the end. Um, I wonder if the writers thought, you know, oh, we had a fight scene with Killer Moth in issue one and issue two. Oh, we had that big fight scene between the the fake Killer Moth and Firefly and the real Killer Moth and Firefly and Black Black Canary and Batgirl, maybe we don't need a fight scene in the end. Maybe that's what their thinking was.
1: Yeah, and I think part of it probably had to do with just that they wanted it to be Batman and Robin that captured uh, the two in the end, so I guess they figured keeping her out there was the best way to keep her from being there for the takedown. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, I just, I would have liked something a bit more personal.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that, the, the Batman and Robin getting credit for everything sort of Hints of the Silver Age there, where you know the guys always get all the credit, and um, um, and then later we see Batman giving her the respect she deserves, and of course the intelligent of the intelligence of Babs really being highlighted, I think, in this issue. So there was it sort of uh, reminded me of you know the very beginning, you know the 1967 start. Um, it sort of does have a Silver Age feel, but I do agree though what what you're saying with everything. Still good though. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: If I'll I'll just jump in with my rating, I'll uh, okay. I, I give it ten out of ten bats. Uh once again, it was it was a very good ending to the series. Um even though I thought the villains were taken down a little bit too quickly, it was a good code to everything at the end there. Um so yeah, that was that was a ten out of ten right there.
0: And I'm also gonna round out my nine issues with a ten out of ten. Um, this series did not disappoint the first time I read it. Um, I loved it. I fell in love with it right away. Um, and, you know, reading it again, it just made me realize how much, even more so that I, I love this character and the reason why I'm doing this podcast. So, for sure. So, what, what are your, uh, favorite and least favorite issues from, um, this series?
1: Uh, my favorite was chapter six, easily. Uh, I cannot oversell how masterful uh, the writing of that issue was, uh, particularly with the, the transitions between scenes and between uh, time periods were just some of the best I've ever seen in a comic book, period. Plus, it was just chock full of story. Uh, it was a very dense issue. That was the longest summary I did for any of these issues that I summarized. Um, and I, I think the issue actually pretty much makes a case for a Batgirl, the early years, ongoing series.
0: For sure. Um, I would say mine was probably Chapter 3, mainly because it really showed uh, Babs's perseverance in the face of adversity, i.e. Batman. Um, and it really has one of my favorite scenes in the series uh, between Babs and Jim. Um, it highlights her ingenuity, um, whether it's in getting out of a sticky situation or modifying her costume and gadgets. So I think it's sort of the, the pivotal Batgirl right there. Absolutely. Um and, and your least favorite, which one is that?
1: Uh, chapter five, to no one's surprise. Um uh, it, it never made the case for its existence. We would have been fine cutting it out and having an eight issue miniseries.
0: Yeah, chapter five is mine as well. You know, I think the biggest problem for me really was that Babs wasn't in it. Um and it really I thought it was really slow of, of the nine. You know, when I was rereading these They took me a short amount of time to read them, and sometimes that's viewed as bad. Um, For the comics, I think, like, quick reading is sort of one of those controversies going around, Um, but I view this quick reading as just, it was so, you immerse yourself so much in it that it's, you just want to sort of keep eating. It's like a bowl of good ice cream. You just want to keep eating until it's done, and I just wanted to keep reading until it was done, so... Um, yeah, Chapter 5 was not a good bowl of ice cream. It was... <laughs> that's, yeah. Um... It had
1: raisins in it. Raisins.
0: Do you not like raisins?
1: In ice cream? Hell no.
0: Oh. I guess they wouldn't... They'd be frozen and chewy. I
1: do you would not like raisins in your ice cream, would you?
0: <laughs> I guess not. I've never thought about it before.
1: I hadn't either until just now, but the strange things yeah. pop up in my head.
0: Kevin Cushing broadening my horizons since 1985.
1: <laughs> when I wasn't even born.
0: <laughs> See, I thought maybe, well, because you're a little older than I, so, okay. 1986. I was born 86. Okay, I was too. I just wondered if you were maybe a little bit older. Um, <laughs> yeah, you are only a month older than I am, that's right, so I should have. Oh, silly me, I'm naive. Oh, okay. Could
1: have been twins.
0: Yeah, I know, for sure. <laughs> um, so... What do you think of the the pacing? Um, it really seems apparent that this all takes place over a short span of time. Um, do you think that worked?
1: I think the pacing is, is great. Uh, you mentioned that it was a quick read, and it was. Um, honestly, I was surprised it was nine issues, especially, like I said, I have the trade, so I'm not even going through nine individual issues. This trade, uh, it, it reads like a six-issue trade, really, and it's not... you know, the, the Quick reads that people seem to not like are generally the ones that are just kind of sparse on dialogue. They have a lot of, you know, two two page splashes of you know a tiny narration caption here and five panels that are all beats. But uh, this one is just a brisk read. It's got the it's got the words there. It's got the writing. It's got the movement. It's got the action. It's just I think a lot of the action too, and the way Marcos Martin's art moves uh, just helps it be a really brisk read. The pace is great. Uh, as for it taking place over a short span of time, I think they, they handle that really well um, because they do pack so much into it. You know, you get uh, your you start out with just Killer Moth, then you add in Firefly, then we flash over to Blockbuster, and you know, we develop several relationships over the course of it. Uh, it really felt like uh, an expansive and immersive look at her first year.
0: Uh, I definitely agree with you about the pacing. Um, I mean, it would have been a completely different series if it was slowed down, you know? It would not have been Batgirl year one to me. Um, I guess the only thing I wonder is um, how it would have changed if they showed stuff later in her career. Because I feel like this sort of happens over two to three months, and so it's like Batgirl first quarter of the year. Um, (laughs)
1: Batgirl month one.
0: Yeah, and you can really see the growth that takes place over this time. I mean, maybe six months at most, but I, I kind of wonder what would have happened if... Um, what if they would have solved the, the Killer Moth um, Firefly in the in the first, I don't know, first five or so, and then maybe the four it would have been uh, later on in her career. Do you think that would have worked, or do you think that would have weakened the, uh, the series?
1: I think it probably would have weakened it. Um... A miniseries needs some kind of a focus, a through line. With a superhero miniseries, usually it needs, usually it needs one villain. Uh, of course, this one expanding to nine, they were able to add in more on the villain front, but I think you needed to attach to a villain in the first issue and see that villain taken down in the last issue, uh, for, really for the whole story structure. I mean, if we just went through a couple of villains, it would be more like uh, a few short arcs just numbered under one miniseries. Which I guess, you know, we all would probably enjoy a few short arcs, but uh, just for the fact that it is a miniseries, I think it, it did need to be this way.
0: Yeah, um, and I think um, having sort of consistency with it, um, and that they all sort of center around a main conflict does work out, so. definitely, I, I guess I'm just waiting for Batgirl year two, you know, but I guess only Batman gets the treatment of year two and year three, not the girl, so.
1: Or Batgirl Year One Second Half Quarter.
0: That, yeah, that that would work. <laughs>
1: of course, it's people a- think it's some kind of a you know financial miniseries, but
0: whatever. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I mean, do you have any uh any other thoughts? I guess before we wrap up the reviews.
1: Uh, I think we've I think we've had a daggone good discussion of all these nine issues.
0: Yeah. For sure, for sure, and you know, yeah. I guess it was just sort of like. Maybe I was hopped up on um, some drug pills. I remember I had um, one of my, uh, my foot surgeries um, when, I, when I first read this, but I just really imagined like her being a real person and like really liking her, and I think that's really what drew me and just sort of sh- this likability that the character has. And
1: uh, it was the drugs.
0: <laughs> I don't think so. I think <laughs> it's that she's really a likable character.
1: And even more likable under the influence of drugs.
0: Okay, whatever. Um, (laughs) You brought it up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anyways, you know, they were painkillers people. They were prescribed. I just want to put that down so no one thinks that I'm a crazy person that has shakes and stuff. No Um, shakes,
1: just imaginary friends named Barbara Gordon.
0: Oh, my word. (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, so uh, I'm going to give you my uh, literary recommendation, and then I've also um, allowed this character to my, to my. well, he's not to any side of me, actually, but I guess <laughs> he'd be to the west of me, technically, state-wise, um, he's going to also give you a recommendation. So my literary recommendation for this episode is Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Uh, Catch-22 follows Yossarian, a U.S. B-25 bombardier during World War II. Most of the events take place in the Mediterranean and in Italy, not following really any set uh, chronological sequence. The novel really critiques bureaucratic operation and reasoning and also shows, at least in the end of the novel, the desperation and ugliness that war brings. Um, And what is the (coughs) Catch-22, you may ask? Um... Catch-22 is sort of this no-win situation that frequently comes up throughout the novel. Um, As quoted from the book, there was only one catch, and that was Catch-22, which specified that a concern for one's safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind, or, who is a character, "Uh, was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask, and as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. Or would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't, but if he was sane, he had to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to, but if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. If he followed that, basically what it's saying is if you wanted to stop flying, uh, you could say that you want to stop flying and uh, you would be considered sane, but you had to keep flying because you were sane. But if you kept flying, you'd be considered crazy and would be grounded, but only could be grounded if you were. Um, wait. Crazy? See, I can, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> if you admitted that you wanted to be grounded, then you would be sane. So it's sort of this you can't get out of it. It's like this endless circle. It's a catch 22. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it was a deeply engrossing and entertaining novel. Um, at times it was funny, at other times extremely frustrating, and at other times still deeply disturbing. And, you know, to really evoke all these emotions, I think that one has to consider this a great book. So I do recommend it. Kevin?
1: Well, uh, Stella has graciously allowed me to break format from her literary recommendations, because she's really a literary girl. Yeah. Um... My recommendation, I want to recommend Veronica Mars, not just because it's a great TV show, but I want to recommend it specifically to fans of Barbara Gordon and specifically to fans of Batgirl Year One, or if you've not read it but you've loved our summaries and discussion through this episode, and really, how could you not? Uh, when I was thinking, <laughs> apparently falsely, that Barbara was a bit underage during this miniseries and was a bit disturbed by this whole budding relationship with Jason Bard, uh, it really reminded me exactly of the way I felt about the young Veronica Mars's relationship with a young sheriff's deputy in that show, uh, which of course is now an erroneous connection in the underage part, but still. Uh, <laughs> anyway, thinking about that, I uh, realize that there actually are kind of a lot of similarities between Veronica Mars and Barbara Gordon. We've got uh, that relationship with the deputy that's kind of like the relationship with Jason Bard. Her father uh, is the former sheriff, much like uh, Barbara Gordon's commissioner father or captain father in this particular miniseries. Uh, Veronica, like Barbara, wants to work in law enforcement. Uh, in her case, she wants to work with the FBI, which, of course, Babs flirted with the FBI in year one here. Uh, she is a middle class cop's daughter among rich people, although, of course, Veronica's rich kids at school are quite a bit different than Batman. <laughs> but, uh,. And really, she fights crime at a young age, often behind her father's back, uh, but she still has a great relationship with her father. All of these things sound like I could be describing Barbara Gordon. Uh, It's it's a connection I didn't really make before I I thought of that relationship, but uh, thinking about it more, I really think if you enjoy Batgirl, you would probably enjoy Veronica Mars. It's a great series with great mysteries, uh, lasted three seasons— all of which are out on DVD. So I would highly recommend you give that a look.
0: And I second that. Um, I'm a fan of uh, Veronica Mars as well. Um, you know, especially because they sort of changed the format of the mysteries in um, Season 3, but I think... Definitely. Like the first and second season were so strong, especially sort of this first one where she's this outcast um, and and her father is sort of undergoing this like emotional strain because he um, falsely accused somebody of something. I won't give anything away. Um, (laughs) But yeah, for sure. Um, So, I mean, I should have probably asked you this before, but why do you think um, you thought that Barbara was so young? Is it because of the art?
1: I think a lot of it is because of the art. Uh, right from the cover of this trade, you know, we see this kind of little looking girl, uh, sort of bouncy with her little smile on her face, just evokes kind of a a, a real image of youth. Uh, especially, you know, once I got into it, the art, yeah, she did look young, and I see her uh, living with her father. Um, it just, it all seemed kind of like a sixteen year old girl to me. You know, she's she's living with her father. She's uh, running off a tantrum, kicking some books in her bedroom when she gets in there. And, uh, you know, we never saw her in any kind of uh, school. We just saw this library job that, you know, a high schooler could have, really. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's right there in the text that she she did pre-law. It was just one of those things that I accepted but never applied logically to the rest of what I was thinking.
0: <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> she I does have that... Dad- yeah, she does have that heart pillow too, which I I don't know. It always seemed like very out of scene for some reason to me. I, maybe it's just like picking out a random element, but she always had this heart pillow on her bed, and I was like, eh, I don't think I had a heart pillow on my bed ever. So <laughs> I think um, maybe if you are twelve, you can have one. So I can yeah, I, think s- see.
1: I accept. You are right. The, you know, the whole pre law thing means she she is older, but I, I feel like they wrote and drew a younger character.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, not everyone looks their age. I mean, I look like I'm 16, and I'm certainly not, so... True,
1: but, you know, we're also talking about, like I say, the little tantrums, and, uh... You know, how old is Robin supposed to be here? I mean, he looks pretty pretty damn little, but she's checking out his legs.
0: Yeah, well, he doesn't have hair on his legs, so who knows?
1: True, but I don't think Robin ever developed hair on his legs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He just shaved... You know... I just don't know how anyone would be comfortable in that outfit.
1: Yeah, and if he did get hair on his legs, he'd have to... You know, Batman probably made him (laughs) shave.
0: Oh, gosh. I don't know. Especially
1: before he got into that Batgirl costume. You know, can't can't be Batgirl with hairy legs.
0: Well, yeah, so he must be prepubescent, I guess.
1: I don't know about that. I get the impression he's maybe around 16. Um, so that's like, yeah. But that's the exact age I thought Barbara was, so I could be completely wrong. <laughs> yeah,
0: and then it makes it a little creepy that she thought he was a good kisser.
1: Yeah, but, uh, I mean, yeah, you have no context for Robin's age in this miniseries. Yeah. And, you know, you can't, you obviously can't go by the art because I was going by the art for Barbara and I was way off.
0: And how old is he now?
1: Uh, Dick Grayson?
0: Yeah. He's
1: around, I don't know, I don't think they've ever specified, but he's around 25 ish, I think. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Although, there is one clue, now that I think about it. Alfred mentions that uh, that Dick is a member of the Teen Titans, so that is when he was a little bit older.
0: Okay. Well, I'm glad we solved that mystery a little bit.
1: Oh, yeah, we we nailed <laughs> that it shut.
0: Oh, gosh. <laughs> like a casket. Um. <laughs> so, I, well, you said you nailed it shut, you know, like a casket. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a good one. Gosh,
1: God, me. yeah. On
0: my Stages. own show. This is the last time you ever come on here. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but, you know, thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing with me, perhaps one of my favorite series, Back Row Year One.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I am very honored to be the first guest on this show. I've been loving listening to it every
0: month. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, so, any final, final comments before we wrap up?
1: Uh, final comments. I uh, just want to yeah, thank Stella for having me on the show. Thank you all listeners for bearing with me, even though you probably weren't expecting a male voice when you started this thing. So, uh, yeah, this is this has been a lot of fun. And uh, if you ever need me back, I will be there.
0: Yay. Um, so, of course, you know, comments or questions, looking to order some power tools, email me at badgirl to oracle at gmail.com. Now, uh, some of you out there might be keen enough um, to observe that I skipped an issue where Babs makes an appearance. Um, I am not unaware of this. Babs actually appeared in Batman number 191, the day Batman sold out an issue which came out in May 1967, along with Detective Comics number 363. Will I cover this? Of course, but how else can I have a The Lost Issues episode, um, if not by skipping West pivotal appearances and later bringing them together? Um, and, you know, the main point of this podcast is really to look at the character development of Barbara Gordon and... Uh, recently, I went to a comic shop, and I found, as an example, uh, Batman number 342, and it's listed as a Barbara Gordon appearance, and literally, when you say that, you actually mean that there are two panels of um, Barbara Gordon where you see her face, and one where you see the back of her head. So, these are sort of not on the high-priority list, but I probably will get to them at some point. Um, and you know, also this weekend, I was unfortunately brainy Uh Unfortunately, it hit my blog, and I'm pretty sure it's going to spread to my Facebook and Crawlspace account. I guess we'll see what comes of it. Um, so, hopefully, you don't get brainy Uh Once again, I thank you for listening, and if you encounter anyone named Roman Sionis on the street, I would strongly advise running the other way. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. As a sort of Postscriptum to episode four: After Kevin and I had recorded this episode, um, I got into a conversation with my Greenlist Yoda friend Michael Bailey, where I asked him some of the questions that Kevin and I were wondering uh, about the um, the Justice League of America satellite and Black Canary's role in the Justice Society. So, first of all, the Justice League satellite was introduced in Justice League of America number seventy-eight, which came out in February of 1970, and of course the way that comics usually label their dates, it most likely came out in 1969. So per our discussion um, where Kevin was arguing that it was way too much of a modernization, I guess it wasn't too much um that would have been two years i guess if we think of this this year one series as taking place in 1967 but of course there is that i guess dichotomy between what was modern back then and what is modern now via the the porn uh, wallpaper computer guy um and voice chatting for there so that's the one thing that we discussed um the other one uh i Erringly said that Black Canary was one of the founding members, and I was incorrect. Uh, she was not one of the founding members. She did join the JSA around 1948 in All Star Comics number 41. Um, I do have to say, though, if hopefully you'll give me some slack because the crises really did do a number on that character's history. Finally, um, I did say about the percolator being a dance, and I did research it, and I am correct. The percolator was a dance in the 2000s that was made popular by Madonna. Um, I went on UrbanDictionary.com, and to quote them, apparently the percolator is gyrating your legs in time with the music as well as popping your butt. Yes, it does sound dangerous, so be careful when performing any sort of percolation. Um, and finally, I should have brought this up earlier, but now you can donate to this podcast either via my blog, where there's a little icon of Yvonne Craig and she's begging you to donate, or via my Potomatic page. Um, and it makes me a little uneasy, you know, asking for money. Um, obviously, only do it if you want to. I am not going to go around like a gypsy, um, but I do really want to expressly state that Any of the proceeds that I get are going directly... Um, towards this podcast, either in getting research material or maintaining sites, any sorts of things like that. I have no plans to take over the earth, nor do I plan on funding an experiment to resurrect Juliet Burke from Lost, you know. I'm sure if we did resurrect her, she'd just die again anyways. Once again, I'm really going to leave you this time. I hope you all really enjoyed it. Um, And once again, fly on, Babs lovers.